but then I had Apocalypse the 12. I was going to ask about the 12th. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today for the season four premiere of Cerebro, episode 101, is a guest who requires no introduction to most comic fans. I am here with Jonathan Hickman, one of the most celebrated creators in contemporary comics, writer of many great creator-owned things you should also look up if you haven't, like East of West, the current Three Worlds, Three Moons project on Substack, and many, many more, but best known to Marvel fans for his seminal work on Fantastic Four, Avengers, and most recently, the X-Men. Soon, he and Valerio Schitti will be launching the new series Gods, G-O-D-S, with periods in it, which is a very mysterious, ominous kind of book that appears to be dealing with some of the deeper cosmic questions of the Marvel Universe that have never been super well-defined. So I'm intrigued. Jonathan, how are you today? I'm great. I'm great. I uh, I have nothing to complain about. Happy to be here. <laughs> well, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. I know that interviews aren't your favorite thing in the world, <laughs> but you've been very kind whenever I've seen you at cons and whatnot. And Teeny said to me, you know, the thing I really want to hear on your show is Jonathan talking about Apocalypse. So <laughs> I was excited to do it. We are one month out now as of this recording from episode 100, the frankly insane marathon episode that I recorded with Sarah Sentry on Madeline Pryor. I just want to thank everybody for your kind words on that and add two things that somehow in the 18 hours we went in that episode, because it was episode 100 and we wanted to see just how long we could go. It was several recording sessions, to be clear. Jonathan just made a big fa- I'm not going to keep you for, for 18 hours, I promise. How many sessions was it, though? Four. So the last one was seven hours. But, you know, we had a great time. I felt bad, though, because when Al Ewing was on, he was like, I want to beat your record. How long is the longest episode? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I have something coming down the pipe that's going to be really long just two things that somehow I neglected to mention or clarify throughout that. One is the fantasy sequence that she has while she's under telepathic scrutiny in Genosha in the Green and Pleasant Land arc with the child form and everything. That is a reference to Lyndon Baines Johnson's campaign ad, Daisy, which was an anti-nuclear ad. You can look it up. I just forgot to bring that up. I think I've mentioned it on the show before in previous moments with Maddie. Uh, And then the other thing, I just want to clarify this before the jobs come for me. I said that Maddie says I am what I am before Jean says I'm the only me that ever was. And what I meant was Maddie says I am what I am first in that context. It is a famous line that Jean says in the Dark Phoenix saga, specifically to her father when he asks what she has become. She says, I am what I am. So it's referencing that, but in the world of the 80s that we were talking about, that's not the real gene, right? So I think it was an important reification. Anyway, that's that. And if you have any further notes on that episode, I encourage you to listen to it again. Here and now, we are going to talk about Apocalypse and Sabaneur, A, in whatever unpronounceable tone of voice that is to be set in. But I also like to talk sort of generally about Krakoa and the process and the big concepts behind all of it. 
First and foremost, though, Jonathan, I'd love to talk a little bit about you, about your origin story with the X-Men, how you came to this franchise. I know you're a big New Mutants guy. And then pivot when it makes sense into how the pitch for Krakoa and doing the X-Men yourself came together. Sure, sure. I guess to start with, I remember, I don't remember which issue it was. Uh, I remember the summer. Uh, because I was on vacation with my family and me and a family friend uh, were walking along the beach. Um, and this is the kind of ridiculous stuff you could do way back then. <laughs> we were collecting seashells and selling them by the side of the road for like a, a, a nickel or something like that. You were actually selling seashells by the seashore. Exactly right. And I got up enough money to run to 7-Eleven and I got one of the issues of uh, Dark Phoenix Saga. And that was my first X-Men issue. Wow. Now I'd read comics for a long time, but I was a DC guy. And that was one of the first Marvel books that I, I really kind of got into. And obviously what a time to get into it. For sure. And obviously I begged all my friends and scoured to get all of the issues surrounding that that had come out before. And then I never missed an issue for years after that. But that was that was my start. And man, what what great comics those were. It's really impressive to me how well Claremont still holds up. There are things that are going to be a little dated in anything that was written 40 years ago, but overall, the narrative structure is impeccable, the characterization is impeccable, all of that stuff is just so good. And Dark Phoenix is such a fascinating on-ramp because in a lot of ways, you know, my father... Uh, is a collector, an X-Men collector. So I grew up like very enmeshed in it and he was reading from the 60s. So for him, Dark Phoenix Saga was sort of the ending. Right. But for so many people, it was the on-ramp because that's when the uncanny rebrand happens, when Kitty Pride shows up, it's all of that. So I think you're definitely not alone there. When did the idea, I'm going to pitch X, come together? You had obviously done a ton of work at Marvel, culminating in Secret Wars, and then departed for a moment. Well, it's the only Marvel book, like I said, that I read growing up. So it's the only one that I gave a shit about <laughs> in the sense of I, I had always loved it. I don't know that that's a, I think I'm a really good argument for that's not necessarily a good thing to bring to the book, right? Mm. I think there are plenty of people who get onto books who didn't love the book, who turn books into things that they not only really care about, but the experience of writing it for the first time and really getting immersed in it the first time kind of adds a certain amount of kind of romantic innocence to your entry into the book. I think my Fantastic Four is that way. Right. It really reads like a guy who's falling in love with the Fantastic Four as he's writing the Fantastic Four. X-Men was completely different than that. But I had pitched, not that pitch isn't the right word, because I was I was busy and working at Marvel as soon as I was in the door when I did Secret Warriors. And then, you know, Marvel, Tom Brevoort, uh, famous Marvel editor, very early on gave me uh, a, a very good bit of advice, which was, Jonathan, it is not my job to manage your career. Mm. I will give you so much work that you drown and you fail as a creator because my job is putting people into seats that can make good comic books. And you clearly can make good comic books. The editors here know this. So you're going to get job after job after job. And the reality is, is that if you are not careful, 
you will have too much work on your plate. You will fail. You will miss your deadlines. You won't be dependable. The company will change the way that they look at you and all that kind of stuff. So it's on you to manage your, your career. So really quickly on, I got Secret Warriors and S.H.I.E.L.D. and I was going to be the Fantastic Four writer. Like that happened pretty quickly. Yeah, that was early in yeah. your time. I just read Secret Warriors straight through for the first time recently because we did an episode on Manifold and Gateway. Right, right. And your question, which was, when did I pitch it? The answer is I didn't pitch much at all because I was so busy. Busy to the point where I wasn't able to pitch. Every time the X-Men came up as a book that you could get on and I was not the person, I also don't ask for jobs. Like I don't, I don't, I don't do that. Like I don't, don't, um, if somebody else has a book, I think it's really shitty to, to try and intervene, to pitch out from under them. Like, I don't think that's cool. Now it's different when the company asks you to pitch because the company is clearly looking at making a change and all of that kind of stuff. That's mm -hmm. a different consideration, but pitching while somebody else is on a book is like really bad form to me. Uh, and so I, I, I never, never did it, but occasionally over the years, I would get asked hey, what would you do with this? And I, I, I pitched Powers of 10, like conceptually, not the title or the specifics that were in it, but conceptually an idea of that book when I got Ultimates. Mm. So, so pretty far back. So before I got Avengers. Um, but when Marvel Now happened, obviously I got I got the big books. I got Avengers and New Avengers, which were going to lead to Secret Wars. And Brian Bendis went over and did all the X-Men stuff. I think I'm remembering that correctly. That's about right. Yeah. Yeah. And so obviously that ate all of that period of time. And then I, I left Marvel right. in 2015. And I had very little intention of coming back. But some things happened and some stuff came up. And they asked me to please consider coming back. And obviously the Fox deal went through. Uh, and I had the opportunity of doing a couple different things, but whenever we started talking about X-Men, they were like, well, what would you do? And I was like, well, I would do this. And, you know, I threw up all over the table, <laughs> and I put, but I, I, I put down everything that I would do. And at that time I had been inside of the company long enough that I knew how everything worked and I knew I was very good at pitching projects, obviously. And, and I understood what the company was looking for. And I was just able to pitch something that it was really hard to say no to, even though Jordan was a new uh, head editor of that line and probably did not want to go this way. I know that he didn't want to go that way. <laughs> well, that's one thing I actually really appreciate about Jordan as an editor. He he actually was kind enough to do this show very early on, which I was very grateful for. He is not someone who pushes his opinions of the X-Men onto the writers, which I think is a really important editorial skill. I feel like he's he's always sparking a fire on Twitter or whatever with his X-Men Monday interviews when he's like, well, I think Emma and Magneto will always be bad guys. Or like, I don't think Madeline Pryor is a real person at all. But his point is that that's not what happens in the comic, right? So an editor who doesn't, who wouldn't do that, but who's willing to let you do that is I think a really valuable thing. Well, he definitely was not happy about what I pitched. <laughs> but then when he thought about it, and and we talked about it some, obviously he, he got it, you mm -hmm. know, and listen, he was not alone. 
when I pitched this stuff, like they, it was like a very small thing. Like I flew into New York and pitched all the editors. There was no, there were no creative, there was no talent in the room. (laughs) um, But no, I pitched all the editors and the opinions were all over the place. Oh, I'm sure. It's a radical revamp. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so obviously Joe had, Cosada uh, was still there and he had very strong opinions. I bet. <laughs> and of course, people who love the X-Men had very strong opinions because this was very um, not quite the X-Men that you were used to, right? But that was really the first time that I got the chance to pitch hard what I would do in the X books. I also had the, uh, just to go back for a second, when I was leaving in 2015, Marvel brought me in for a couple different retreats to try and get me to stay or to help. However, however you want to say the motivations there, right? Yeah, sure. And they asked me what I would do. And I talked a little bit more about, you know, kind of what my ideas were. But I, I just was tired and I didn't want to do it. And the company was in a really weird spot because um, the company was in a really weird spot. I mean, it, it, sure. it's inside baseball stuff that nobody's going to care about. But And I was just done for a while. Um, and so I, I, I just kind of walked away. But this was the really the only time that I pitched it hard like I, I wanted it. Uh, I got it. And and it was the House of X, Powers of Ten stuff. And what was the kernel there? Like, we're starting a nation, the resurrection angle. What was the first thing that came to you? Well, that's not really how my head works. That's why I'm at, like, I'm intrigued to know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? I don't really get the beginning of a thing. I, I get I get the beginning and the ending of a thing. That's how I know that it's a good idea because you can start with a bunch of velocity and you can end with a lot of velocity, right? And so and so I got the whole structure of what I was going to do. When I was pitching it, obviously I was like, look, we're going to start off in a really, really radical place. And then we're going to do this. And then we're going to do another thing. And then it's going to become even bigger. And we're going to do that. And, and so I pitched them a very, very detailed kind of take on how to do one very important thing, which was make it cool again in a new, different way and make it so that's very, very friendly to people who have loved the book for a very long time, right? And so obviously the first stuff that we did was very jarring to old readers. I mean, I didn't know what to make of it. Very polarizing. Yeah, I mean, I remember when issue two came out I guess it was maybe a little after, but I was still thinking about issue two with the Moira reveal. I was in Dublin for the Hugo Awards and Kieran Gillen and I went to lunch and we just couldn't stop talking about it because our minds were like on fire. And it's actually been really fun for me as someone who's been friends with Kieran for a long time, just to see him now getting a chance to to play with Krakoa after you built it because he was so enthused and we were both so enthused i was like i can't decide if i love this or if i hate it about moira but i was like but i know that i can't stop thinking about it i landed pretty quickly on i love it and i've been a a staunch moira x plot defender pretty much from the jump because to me 
it was so additive and I really like the additive versus destructive model sure. that you espouse in working with these big products because yeah, Hoxpox itself is very jarring, intentionally so. Are they a cult now? Is it evil? Those questions are things I think you pose to us in a way that is like, keep reading and find out, right? Yeah, it, is this a good idea? Right. Yeah. If you got everything you ever wanted, is it, is it, is it, what is that actually... good? Yeah. And that's probably the kernel of it. So did Kieran tell you that we asked him to be in all of this at the beginning? He didn't. He's very good at not telling me things he's not supposed to tell me, but that's very funny. I mean, he was busy at the time, right? So that makes sense. Staffing the room to start off with was really, really uh, uh, complicated uh, for a lot of, a lot of different reasons, but the, the industry was really like, all over the place at that period of time. And so, and plus we were trying to staff a room based around something that nobody had read yet. Right. That there's no way they were going to get until they actually read the scripts and then saw the books and all that kind of stuff. So it was, that, that was crazy complicated. So yeah, my sense is that the early set that emerged that you chose, it was Teeny and Jerry and Ben. At first, and then it kind of grew I'm out. I'm trying there. to remember that. Well, first of all, that's like I'm I'm getting old, and so I I, <laughs> I, I have to be very careful about what I per partition no, as term and short term memory. No, but um, I remember that me and Jerry and Ben and Teeny got together in New York, and it was the first time I had met Ben or Teeny. Uh, obviously, I had read. Um, I had read some of their work. I, they had given Marvel had given me a bunch of scripts to read of a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. um, I like forget about the fact that I've grown to like them a lot as people, but I, I I liked what they were putting down on the page, and Marvel liked them as talents that they were willing to invest in. Mm -hmm. And then when I met them and we spent a couple of days together, they, it was it was great. It was fantastic. One of the most lovely things about doing this show for me. And it's really nice 100 episodes later after Teeny and I launched it actually to have you on because you guys have worked closely together. One of the things that's been really nice is getting to know all these people because the room that you assembled is just everyone is just so lovely. <laughs> I mean, it really is a fun group of people. Yeah, it. I tend to be an incredibly. I've done this long enough and seen enough people come and go that I generally have a very professional attitude about this, which is I really love Greg Pak, but he's not around that much anymore. And so there's only so much of a relationship that you're going to have with someone like that, you know? Sure. Same thing's true with, you know, Brew Baker and all those guys. Like I, I like we're all friends. I'll be friends with those people forever, but there's a certain amount of detachment that you have and that the fact that you're only in the room together two or three times a year. The X-Men crowd was different, obviously, because uh, one, uh, we we got together every week, which was incredibly beneficial to all of them, I think. Definitely helped the cohesiveness of the line. It's the most cohesive the line's been since it was just Chris and Wheezy, honestly. And the fact that it was like 14 people was shocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's it was tough. That, that, that part of it was very difficult, but I think everybody put in all the work to do that. But, you know, the world was going fucking nuts at the same time. And that probably had a lot to do with how we were all kind of just like able to 
you know, let our guard down and this is a safe place and we can talk about stuff that isn't necessarily a, the X-Men if we need to, and we're here for each other. And I don't, I don't, I, I, I that's the singular kind of situation that I had, I've had like that in comics. And, um, and I think that regardless of where everybody ends up that was in that room, I'll have a, a, a you know, a special kind of fondness for everybody that, that worked in the office at that time. You know, I love those guys. The one who did tell me that you asked early on was I had Mike Carey on the show to talk about Frenzy. He was a delight, absolute angel. He came on because the episode about Lady Mastermind went viral because it's very, it's just me, another gay guy getting drunk and talking about this very silly character. But I love the Carey run the way that you do. I hadn't read it until more recently because the decimation era was just not my favorite thing in the world when it was happening. He mentioned, he was like, oh, they asked me to come on and do Children of the Vault, but I haven't read a comic in years. So he was just like, I, you know, it didn't seem feasible. Well, we approached a, a like, when Marvel asked me who did we want to write all of the books, and I was like, go get the best X-Men writers of the past 15 years. Let's get Mike, let's get Kieran, let's talk to Fraction, let's talk to like, let, like, let's get a murderer's row of the people who absolutely crushed this shit. And let's make this the biggest, best line in comics as possible. And obviously everybody was busy. And again, the company was in a weird place and all of that kind of stuff but i think you did make it the biggest best line in comics no we totally succeeded in that like like, just, <laughs> like regardless you know just from a, a a monetary perspective and a numbers perspective we were a smashing success um it's just it took on a really really different shape than what i was expecting because i you've got to remember i did not know any of Outside of Jerry, I did not know anybody that had walked in the door in the last two years. I didn't know Leah. I didn't know Vita. I didn't know I, I didn't know any anybody who really ended up on the books outside of Jerry, who's the only other person that I had known. Obviously, Kieran and Cy and those guys I knew later on. And who came in a little later, but yeah, no, I get what you mean. I knew Al and and all that kind of stuff. But you know, I was super excited about getting to work with Brian Edward Hill. It was just, it was kind of, it was kind of, kind of crazy there at the beginning because everything, everything was slow and then it accelerated at an incredible, when it started coming out and it started doing well, obviously then it became a priority for everyone. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone actually knows this or not, Connor, but. Well, I love a scoop. Call me Trish Tilby. <laughs> when, uh, <laughs> No, I will not. Uh, Call me Manoli Weatherall. She was a much better journalist. There you go. So when House of X numbers came in, they weren't great, right? Like they like when the numbers for issue one came out, they weren't through the stratosphere or anything like that. And everybody at Marvel kind of freaked out a little bit because I remember Jordan telling me. Yeah, that surprises me, honestly. They didn't let it show. Well, <laughs> I thought it was hilarious because um, I, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But <laughs> so, so the numbers, the numbers kind of came out, and they were they were very strong. We were going to be the number one book, but they weren't the kind of numbers that everybody was going to go, "Oh my god!" You know, Jonathan came back and he crushed his book, and sure. the pre-order numbers are a million and all of that kind of nonsense. Right? They were healthy and they were fine. You know, six figures and all of that kind of stuff, but they weren't the numbers that 
They, they weren't as good as uh, issue 600 that Matthew and them had done earlier in the year. Sure. They were lower than that. And Jordan was telling me this and I just started laughing because I was like, one, that's adorable. People have forgotten that I was any good at this. That's cute. <laughs> but two, I was like, it's a weekly comic book. No, nobody has done a weekly comic book right. in forever. Like not since 52 that I could think of at DC. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Marvel had had not done that, uh, I'm pretty sure. Um, definitely they had not done it with a single writer writing all the issues, right? Right. I was like, we're a weekly comic book, Jordan. Yeah, get back to me in a month. <laughs> we have read this first issue. We know that this is a good comic book and we know that it is going to hit and it's gorgeous and all of that kind of stuff. I was like, it's like this thing's going to immediately go into insane reordering. People are going to under order too. And it's just going to become a frenzy to get copies of the book, which it did. I was like, I was like, we're going to win in the aggregate, but that doesn't change the fact that the accounting people and the marketing people, their job is to be pragmatic, right? Right. So they're going to be a little concerned if it's not meeting the threshold they'd set in their PL. Right, right. So when I laugh at that and I'm like, oh, now we can't lose, right? Now, now it's a no-lose scenario. They look at it and they're like, wow, are we idiots for putting our trust in this has-been guy? Right? <laughs> and so one of the things that happened is that the way that all of the books were going to launch changed. So the way it was going to be is my X-Men book, you know, I, we were going to have to call it X-Men, but it wasn't going to be it was going to be kind of what it was. You wrote more of an anthology, really. It was going to launch all of the other books. Issue one would have been an X-Force issue. And then the next week, X-Force number one would have come out. And then the week after that would have been the Excalibur book. And then the cool. Excalibur number one would have come out. And then same thing for Marauders and all that kind of stuff. And so, and so instead of the... X-Force and Marauders and all these books with these new titles and these new concepts, instead of having to sell issue number one, the cast, the new concept, like all of that kind of stuff, we were going to take a chunk of that out of them having to write that in issue one so that they could just hit the ground going a million miles an hour. And we lost, we lost all of that because they didn't want to launch the books that way. They just want to launch a whole slew of number ones right out of the gate. It's the solicits culture thing, right? Like it's like you yeah. want everybody to be pre-ordering and all of that in the direct market. And they wanted to show that there was a line of comics. So instead of us rolling out one each month or two each month, like it came out in just giant waves. Yeah, there were just right? like twelve of them at the same time. Right. I feel like, and so and so and so that was a that was a thing that we lost that would have really helped the line. Not that the line needed help because obviously it went off like gangbusters. But no, but I think it makes sense that you say that because each one of those books, I think the first arc, you have a little bit of a running to catch up feeling because there's so much that each book has to establish. A, about Krakoa generally, but B, about like, what are we doing in this book? And I get what you're saying is doing it as a backdoor pilot structure would have alleviated yep. a lot of that stress on the first arc of each title. That's a very difficult first issue to write, where you're serving the internal continuity of the comic that you're working on, the external continuity of the comic book universe that it's part of, us loading it up with 
a name that means something to the readers that now is going to mean something else. Totally different. Yeah. Right. And so, so it was just a whole lot to put on that. Now, I mean, we, we won all of those battles, but definitely it put a lot more uh, stress on the writers because again, they were having to write blind. I mean, they weren't blind, but they didn't have all of the bullets in the gun. Like you would like to have for them to have had. But I think they all did a fantastic job. I hate that we didn't get to keep Brian Edward Hill. We lost him in a fight with DC, which is why, uh, you know, he because he works on the Titan show. Right. And so he wasn't able to come in, which is why his book feels kind of off to the side. Feels very detached from the other ones. Yeah. Right. Because he was guessing. He was like literally guessing. They wouldn't let him come to the retreat the first time we got together in New York and all that kind of stuff, which sucks. But like Brian Edward Hill is a fantastic writer and i feel like we did not do right by him by setting him up to succeed and i think that's on me and that's on the the editorial and i think that's on the company um but he's he's fine (laughs) they just put him on blade he's gonna be a-okay you know i think so he's we have the same agent (laughs) he's he sleeps fine he sleeps fine so I didn't love Fallen Angels, and I, uh, but I warmed to it a great deal when he, on Twitter at one point, someone was like, when are you going to write more X-Men? He's like, honey, we've seen me write X-Men. It wasn't very good. <laughs> and I was like, you know, the kind of creator who laughs at himself when something doesn't 100% land is always just really charming to me. But you, I think reading that book, it's what you just said. Like, I could feel that it, like, it's the one that wasn't really cohesive with everything else. Yeah, it was not fair to him because of, I mean, we were getting so much press at that time, too. Mm-hmm. And there was so much conversation around the books and people were hitting it for not being what they, for it not being as cohesive as the other books. And and I was like, this just, I, I felt bad. It wasn't Because it's not like he can say, well, I wasn't able to go to the meeting, right? Like, you know, that's not really something you can... You can't explain yourself to the press, the comics press, when they're speculating about things like that. So that's tough. In general, I think that what you did was bring, with that like Hickman imprimatur, even if you felt a little bit like a has-been at the time at that first week, uh, you know, I think a lot of these creators are people whose names were new to fans and who are now pretty household names because this line went so big. So what was most interesting to me about the Krakoan experiment, apart from the fact that I was like, wow, it's an X-Men comic that I'm really excited to read, which was something that I hadn't felt in a long time, even though plenty of writers have done great X-Men stuff throughout what you playfully called the lost decade in uh, in Hoxpox. Apart from the uh, sheer excitement, the thing that was really interesting to me was just hearing about the way the room was working, hearing about how it felt more like a writer's room on a TV show or something like that, where it was a very collaborative experience. I liked that because I think there is a tendency in all arts fan spaces, but particularly in comics, to go to sort of like a theory of the great man, like auteur thing. Oh, no, that's real. That's real. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But I appreciate that you're always very big on talking about what other people contributed and talking about places you think you fell down. So that's just, I mean, that's something that not everybody does. Well, I mean... I don't know, Connor. I mean, it's, I generally like telling the truth when I'm not lying, you know, <laughs> you know uh, but 
I, I think there's a lot of stuff that goes on in our industry that we could do with a little bit more transparency, you know? Uh, and so whenever people ask me about what actually happened during a thing, if I'm allowed to talk about it or allowed to talk about it in a way that isn't harmful to other creators or, or, or anything like that, then I, I try to do that. I have been fortunate enough that when I came into the industry, I was surrounded by a bunch of people who, uh, while no one talks about money, they are happy to talk about everything else. Um, and I was surrounded by people who really understood the industry and I could watch and learn um, very quickly uh, how, how to work inside of this thing that dominates this sector of entertainment, which is corporate comics, you know, mm -hmm. it's very tricky. Um, it's very tricky because I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, while I grew up reading nothing but DC comics, I, I've never worked over there. Right. So I, I have been limited to one ecosystem and, you know, Fair or not, I've learned how to thrive very well inside of that. Uh, and so I think that, you know, when other people ask me about what to do in regards to their career or or how to handle something, if it's at Marvel, I try and be as honest as I can. Um, so that makes sense to me. That idea of telling the truth as much as you can uh, actually kind of brings us naturally to Apocalypse, a character who you and Teeny really revolutionized in that early period. But one of the most enduring images from House of X, Powers of Ten, is the big panel of Apocalypse and Xavier shaking hands. What made you interested in approaching this character? The Crucible issue and the Davos issue are two of the issues of your run that people, I think, correctly cite as among the strongest. They both hinge heavily on the presence of this character. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this episode with you, A, I was like, well, that'll be fascinating. But B, as a lifelong X-Men fan, I've never found Apocalypse that compelling a character I, I, apart from the initial story by the simonsons which i think is a lot of fun and age of apocalypse where he's more of a set dressing piece than a, a central character i've found a lot of his stories to be odd or meandering or not quite landed for me and this is i think the first time i've ever really truly loved the character so i was just interested in your approach and, and how that all came about well i think a lot of people look at the x-men especially modern X-Men. There's a thing where, where the X-Men metaphor, right? Right. It, it is relevant to the time that you find yourself in, right? And that obviously changes over time, right? And so we've, and we've watched that happen. And one of the other things that's really interesting is the idea of what the uh, penultimate version of that is, right? And that has always taken the form of, is Professor Xavier right or is Magneto right, right? That's been kind of the duality that, that's existed. And I think it's interesting because I think you absolutely could make an argument that um, they're both right and they're both wrong. What I love about Apocalypse is that he is a third argument that is kind of the logical final step of both of their arguments if they're both right. Not if one of them is right and one of them is wrong, but if both of them are right, right? And so and so I, I love the idea of 
we're starting off with the mutants get everything that they want. Xavier gets everything he wants. Magneto gets everything he wants. And what does that look like in terms of the overall kind of Ur mutant mythology if you're talking about all mutants as a group of people? The third plank I've always said in the triangle for me is Emma, uh, certainly after Grant, but even in Claremont. Sure, sure. I think I think that is the argument for the good side or the or the light yeah. side of mutantdom. It's such an interesting force to bring in apocalypse. And my argument was it's a day and night thing, right? When you're talking about a group of people, you're not talking about just good people. You're talking about good people and bad people, right? And so your arguments have to kind of encapsulate all of that. When you talk about humanity, you're not talking about you know, just Gandhi or something like that. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and even Gandhi has, I mean, we, I, it's I, not wait, a Gandhi podcast, but yeah. Right. So I started laughing. Because <laughs> you're like, wait, you know, but that's the thing you, you can pull out lots of, like, we're not talking about Mother Teresa and they're like, wait, there are a lot of people who have bad things to say about Mother. Like, that's the thing. Well, I was laughing because I almost said Abraham Lincoln and all I could think about was the, this week's episode of Barry, where it was like a deconstruction <laughs> of Abraham Lincoln. As a, uh, right. But anyway, my point was, if it's one people, it's one people, and you've got to have some consensus from what is the good guys and the bad guys, even if, even if it's the very, very worst of bad guys. And so then you bring Apocalypse into it as the archetype of the really, really well-argued evil arguments of mutantdom, right? Mm -hmm. Like the worst guy, but he's intelligent and you can have a conversation with him. He's not crazy like Mr. Sinister, right? Like right. It's, it's different. It's And he's not self-centered like Shaw. Or Celine, who's one of my favorites and who's sure. very similar to Apocalypse, but who is entirely narcissistic. Right. I, I always got the sense from Apocalypse that he had no emotional response to anybody's bullshit, right? He was just mm -hmm. a force of nature, which is why I thought it made him perfect as that. That's why I thought that image was important and why it's in that part of the book because I'm pretty sure that was issue five, the last part of issue five. And issue five starts off with this amazing set piece of, of mutants being reborn and brotherhood and sisterhood and this amazing overcoming of, of you know, the, the positive argument of, okay, no more, right? Yes. We're not going to allow this anymore. Right. This is it's the super positive version of it. And that it ends <laughs> that it ends with, with and this. to do that, we're gonna compromise with all these really bad people and they all come through. Exactly right. It's it's all of us or none of us, right? Is the argument. And so I just thought it was uh very clean and very easy to understand. And then very quickly it became clear that that character had a really, really fascinating part to play in what we were doing overall obviously teeny did some really really cool shit yeah but then you know about the issues that you were talking about the davos and the crucible one like those work because he's not wrong at all in those issues now are they are they cruel and are they are they pointed and are they villainous yeah yeah yes, the crucible is right? supposed to make us uncomfortable it's, you give it to us like kurt's 
feeling weird about it. Scott's feeling weird about it. It's not presented to us as like, this is an uncomplicated good. But the things that, I mean, we'll get into the Crucible more because I'm that one I want to dig into. What you say about how it's all of us or none of us is really interesting to me. I approach this material on a lot of different levels. You know, I'm gay, I'm Irish, I'm Jewish. Those are all marginalized positions in certain ways. Hey, hey, triple threat. Yeah, right? I mean, in terms of being a white man, it does feel like, you know, like that's the... <laughs> but the thing that it makes me think of is, you know, like, I mean, Claremont, who's also Jewish and uh, also British, Gentile British, he positioned Xavier and Magneto in his conception as sort of like Ben-Gurion and Begin's conflicts over the formation of Israel and like different positions on that, which is interesting because like I've had a conversation with Chris Claremont about that and like he was not, like he doesn't believe in separatism like that. He would have been against both positions. And so for him, it was an interesting way of mapping that. Well, he comes from a, he comes from a different time. Yes, very different. I, I do too a little bit because I'm 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 old enough to when I first came into the industry, what you wrote was not perceived as a, a, a I mean, I don't think this is true anyway, but this thing of of if you write it, then you must secretly believe it. Believe it. Right. Well, it is a perception that people have, the idea that the characters are speaking for the authors, which can be true, but isn't always true and shouldn't be the assumption sure. made by a reader in any basic way. I think it's a perfectly fine thing for a reader to say, gosh, I wonder if he believes this or not. I wonder, but, yeah. But the beauty of a being a good writer is that you should not be able to tell the difference. The end users should not be able to tell the difference between whether you, what's truth and what's fiction. I mean, that's the point of writing fiction, you know? Yeah, I guess that's what I mean to bring up the Claremont example, because Magneto is the one he identifies with, even though his political position is not the one that Claremont identified with politically. Mm -hmm. To me, the apocalypse, angle, I mean, it reminds me of, you know, the Irish example, the government of Ireland nowadays is an interesting thing because you have the former IRA and they have to negotiate with the people who they were having a civil war with for years and years. And that to me is one of the interesting things about Krakoa. The Jewish thing just occurs to me because A, like that's so core to X-Men from the very beginning with Lee and Kirby, but also you open House of X in Jerusalem and not to get into Israel-Palestine because this is that's way above our pay grade. But I was just curious about the choice to have Magneto be there, to be addressing them. That's where the you have new gods now speech happens. And I found that to be a really interesting notion. Well, we definitely got the note in the script of, hey, do we really want this to be taking place in Jerusalem, right? Like, what are we saying here? Yeah. Right, right. And and my argument was, yes, because of the context of what Magneto is saying. I know that Magneto being the voice of it complicates it for the reader, mm -hmm. but there's a reason why he's the voice in the first issue and not Xavier. Right. There's a very important reason for that. Right. Because we were saving Xavier for issues four and five mm -hmm. together. They were at six. Right. And so we definitely got the note of, is this a smart thing to be doing? And my argument was, I understand the concern. I don't think it's something that he would be afraid to say. I think it's in character. And I think picking that place 
the seed of all Western religions is a perfectly fine place to say you have new gods now, right? Like I, yeah, I found it interesting because it provoked a lot of argument over whether Krakoa was like a pro-Israel or critique of Israel kind of thing. It was just interesting because I didn't see it necessarily as about that at all. People certainly, the, the week that issue came out, it was kind of nuts because people wrote, this is an anti-Semitic position. Right. Other people wrote, no, this is a pro-Zionist position. And I'm and like, in my opinion, it was neither. <laughs> right, right. And of, of course it was neither. But saying that, that's kind of the, you want people talking about your books. Now, of course, we live in a time where people talk about the negative thing first. But I knew where we were going and I knew that we were going to win the argument of is this good and is this an interesting piece of fiction, right? Right. And so I was okay with the choice, but it was really fascinating, the temperature of that, like right out of the gate, you know? The way I interpreted it, I said to people, no, my reading of it is not a pro-Zionist argument at all. The way I read it is that Magneto, the most famous Holocaust survivor in fiction, is addressing diplomats in Jerusalem and saying, we've done it better. That's exactly right. We haven't done what humans do. I am not going to oppress other people in creating my land. And I found that to be very provocative, but in a way that I agreed with. So I loved it. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's... Well, again, we don't, you don't mind, you know, you just don't want to be ignored, that whole saying, right? But I don't mind... So when I did Avengers, mm -hmm. it was one of the most talked about books in the market for the years that it was coming out, because I basically was presenting two sides of an argument, which was the Avengers New Avengers thing, which was, you know, everything dies. And it's really about how you choose to face these two impossible choices. Do you survive or do you maintain your humanity? Right. Like that was kind of the argument. And people, the discussion was robust. People made lots of lots of arguments, but what they never understood, because I didn't tell them until the very end, was that the whole point of all of that was to say that both of those were wrong, that everything lives, right? Like that's the point of the argument. I would argue that that is how you tell an engaging story. You don't give everybody everything and you don't and, and it's okay to put explosive choices in front of people like, is it Xavier? Is it Magneto? Or is it Apocalypse? It's okay that it's none of them, but you have to get to that place. Yes. And so I, I just, I don't ever take any of that stuff too seriously, but it was kind of interesting, the difference in the temperament in those like few years where I wasn't publishing, like how much, how much more overly negative discussion online had become. Yeah, I think social media has really exacerbated that because particularly with the way that the algorithms function, like outrage is going to get more clicks on Twitter than someone saying they like something. And one of the things I really try to do with this podcast, I mean, I don't like every comic book that I read, but if I don't like something, I generally just don't talk about it as much. Sure. That said, if there's something I feel a need to critique, I will. 
And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I do think that there is an assumption in bad faith made a lot of the time now online in a way that I think is harmful to media literacy and just sort of to the discourse generally. I think that you should give creators the benefit of the doubt and let stories play out a little bit before you decide that you know what they're saying or you go on a tear about it. That said, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Like sometimes you make a provocative choice and people are provoked. I mean, that's the, you know, that's natural. The thing that I would say about that, Connor, and I I don't want us to get turn this into a conversation. No, no, no. We're going to move on in like one second because we've said what we need to say, I think. But I would say I'm fine with it because it's not going to change. I'm a fully formed creator. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, I don't like it when people say ugly things about me, but I understand what I'm doing and I am going to tell the story that I'm going to tell. And in a general sense, I know that I can do my job, right? Right. My concern was never, has never, when I came back and noticed that the tenor had changed in a, in a major way, my concern isn't for me at all. It's for the younger writers who are trying. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think it's tough for people breaking in now. And I mean, I'm working on my first comics project right now. And it's something I think about a lot because I find myself worrying, like, what will people say about this? And you have to push past that. But it's it's hard when the noise is very loud now it's very difficult it's very people wonder where all of the new talent is right and and I, i'm not talking about the audience and i'm not talking about professionals speaking to other professionals i'm talking about inside of marvel mm-hmm. where's our new crop of so and so so and so's and i'm like i'm like you know there are more bears when the trout are swimming upstream. You have to be willing to make yourself a figure of public scorn in a way that did not used to be. I mean, they used to have to write into the letters column and they don't have to do that anymore. And that's good and bad in different ways, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's just, it's one of those things. It's, it's one of the things that I loved about our room with the X-Men office is that we could talk about all of that stuff and protect people from that stuff. One of the first things I did whenever we first got together is I asked who in this room has written more than six issues of a comic book before, of an individual series, not have you written six comic books. And the only person that could raise their hand was Jerry. I felt it was really, really important that to get the experience, the right experience out of that instead of the wrong experience. Um, stuff, stuff. I think overall you succeeded, but I think it's a tough environment. It's something that you start to notice more as you become someone people are looking at. I mean, even just doing this podcast, I get some of that. If you're not getting that, it means not enough people are reading or consuming what you're doing. But I do think it's difficult. We can move on because this is not like a fun conversation and we can get on to other things. I think your point about Apocalypse emphasizing like, wait, what if Xavier and Magneto are both right and both wrong? And all of that speaks to something about your work. It's also what you were sort of saying about your Avengers work. I always find your work to be very optimistic at the end of the day. 
in terms of what it says about people and the way we can build things together and all of that. So I have always had faith in Krakoa being a good idea. The question has always been whether these are the right people to lead it, right? Yeah. That's always been my window in is like, is Charles doing the right thing? Is Eric doing the right thing? Is Emma doing the right thing? Is Apocalypse doing the right thing? But even with something like we have to bring in Mr. Sinister, which to me felt like an Operation Paperclip kind of riff, right? Of like, every nation has its nasty Jonathan is smiling and saying yes good <laughs> you know we were always supposed to find that really suspect and I think we were always supposed to find Moira suspect in her creepy journals and stuff I mean I love those journals but they're ominous she's an ominous character it's about the fallibility of our leaders more than it is about the question of whether it is possible or preferable to imagine a more actualized space for minorities. I mean, the no more sequences in Hawksbox really moved me because, again, it felt like it was bringing out that Lee Kirby and Claremont response to the Holocaust and response to anti-Semitism where it's like, never again. We're not doing this again. Yeah, I mean... I find that telling successful comic book stories is all about layering a couple of things on top of each other. You always want to be calling back to, uh, let me put it this way. So a new X-Men writer comes on the book X-Men and uh, the first thing they do is they have them play in a game of baseball or something like that. And we're supposed to feel something, but the 50th time you see it, you don't feel it at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. It It doesn't work. That's an overuse of nostalgia, right? That's comics about comics, as you That's put exactly. it. That is comics about comics, yes. And then there's the version of it where it's what Grant did, where you, I mean, this isn't true, but let's pretend like it is. <laughs> Grant comes in and they do this new thing where it's 100% new, 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 right? Again, that's not necessarily true because it was layered and Grant is fantastic. I've described it as an antithesis to Claremont insert like it's definitely reactive, but it's doing intentionally different things. And then I found your work to kind of be a synthesis of Claremont and Morrison's approaches while becoming something new. It's sort of Hegelian that way. Yeah, I think I think that you have to be serving both of those masters is when you're talking about universes that are based on continuity. If it's a brand new concept, so what? Do whatever you want. But if you're talking about working inside of of a 60-year continuity and readers who extend all the way from the beginning to they've been reading Marvel comics for a week, right? You have to serve both of those things. And so you have to layer them. And I just think that that is is what, what we were doing, you know? And the sinister thing about Apocalypse in House of X and Powers of Ten was that you got this innate sense that he was proud of Xavier and Magneto for finally getting it. Yes, which is like, is that good? Like if Apocalypse is saying, great job, does that mean we've fallen really far? Or does that mean we're seeing something from his long game perspective that we haven't been able to access before? Finally, the day has come when I know who the most fit is. You know, Mm -hmm. you become the most fit. And so layering that in there was, I I just thought, I I thought it served the story so well. So I agree. And I think that's a great moment for us to pause for the Cerebro character file on Apocalypse. 
I will take you through his complete publication history from his first appearance in X Factor 5 by Louise Simonson and Butch Geese, but it's complicated and we'll get into that. This one's going to be tough, guys. This is going to be like Cable or Monet or one of those where like the retcons here and the twists and turns and arranging it all in publication order has been very tricky. (laughs) Bear with me. We'll get through it together. And then I will return for more with Jonathan Hickman. We will talk a little bit about his big apocalypse stories like The Crucible, Ten of Swords. And then we will answer questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Hey everybody, we're doing things a little differently today because I'm excited as Connor Goldsmith, your host, to tell you about the podcast's extraordinary new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game, every comic fan's dream. In this mobile squad RPG, you can assemble a team of your favorite superheroes and supervillains, like Dr. Lorna Dane and the iconic Madeline Jennifer Pryor, to save the universe from cosmic threats like Apocalypse and Doctor Doom. Power up your favorite Marvel characters to complete missions, unlock special gear and other resources, and battle other Marvel fans in PvP modes like Alliance War in the real-time arena. Right now, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating their six-year anniversary with a special Deadpool event, and you can sign up using my unique link available right now in the description of every episode. You'll get free stuff in the game just for signing up through this promotion, with weekly bonuses and events all through this anniversary storyline. Log in every day to get special skins, rewards, and the brand new characters being released to celebrate six years of Marvel Strike Force. This is the game's most generous event to date, and I, for one, can't wait to see all the goodies I can unlock. This promo code works for every new user. Please follow the unique link in this episode description to download Marvel Strike Force so they'll know I sent you. Use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Have a blast with this immersive Marvel experience. Thanks to Marvel Entertainment and the team at Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. We now return you to the show. X-Men, X-Men. The immortal mutant Apocalypse is one of the most iconic X-Men villains. Created by Louise Simonson, Butch Geese, and Walt Simonson, Apocalypse has spent millennia worshipped under many names, secretly cultivating the mutant race through a brutal commitment to natural selection. The X-Men and their allies spent decades of publication working against his seemingly inevitable ascent to power, particularly as he took on the role of franchise Big Bad in the 90s. But then Krakoa changed everything, as the character was revolutionized in 2019 by writers Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard. The first arc of 1986's X-Factor, written by Bob Layton, introduces a new supervillain team called the Alliance of Evil. One of these characters, Frenzy, will later become important. See the Joanna Cargill episode with Mike Carey. But in general, you don't have to worry about them. The key thing is that they're reporting to an unseen employer who appears only in shadow. Layton was planning to reveal the Alliance was working for daredevil villain Leland Owlsley, a.k.a. the Owl. I suppose I can see the Vision, a classic Stan Lee antagonist, the better to understand Underline the back-to-basics Lee and Kirby Silver Age vibe of the new X-Factor title in contrast to Claremont's Uncanny X-Men. It's logical enough. But when Louise Simonson was set to take over writing duties on the title, joined on art by her husband Walt, editor Bob Harris requested she come up with something new. Harris wanted an A-level villain, a threat as iconic as Magneto, who would justify the existence of this new team. Apocalypse was Simonson's answer to this challenge. After the big battle between X-Factor and the Alliance of Evil concludes, Apocalypse, who displays a shocking level of power with vast shape-shifting abilities, abandons these fairly unimpressive minions and tells X-Factor he'll seek them again when he needs help winnowing out the weak. This pursuit, cultivating the strong, is a project Apocalypse claims he has maintained for centuries. 
Over the next several months, in an ongoing subplot, Apocalypse begins recruiting his mutant horsemen. The cruel Morlock plague becomes pestilence after Apocalypse saves her from the marauders during the mutant massacre. War veteran Abraham Kiros, a quadriplegic, becomes war when Apocalypse offers liberation from the iron lung, keeping him alive. Anorexic teenager Autumn Rolfson, resentful of her controlling parents, becomes famine when Apocalypse promises her power over her own life. Soon he completes the set with Warren Worthington III, a.k.a. X-Factor's Angel. After losing his wings to injuries sustained in the mutant massacre, Warren attempts suicide in a helicopter crash. He's rescued from the explosion at the last second by Apocalypse, who gives him new razor wings made of celestial metal and dubs him Death, allowing his teammates to believe he was killed. All four horsemen are modified and brainwashed by Apocalypse's strange alien technology, preparing them for all-out war on the human race. As the franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants begins, X-Factor are summoned to Apocalypse's headquarters, a sentient celestial spaceship. Apocalypse explains his ancient origins and absolute devotion to survival of the fittest. It's notable that in the Simonson origin story, Apocalypse does not come from any specific ancient culture. He claims he was worshipped as Set in Egypt, Sauru in Persia, as Huitzilopochtli to the Az texts, and, most interestingly, the female Kali Ma in India. He invites X-Factor to join his army of the strong, revealing that he has studied them for some time and disdains their old teacher Professor Xavier's vision for peace. He praises X-Factor now for aiding in his work through their posture as human mutant hunters, increasing public hatred of mutants and thereby forcing mutants to become stronger. This assessment upsets them. When they refuse to help him destroy Manhattan, Apocalypse reveals the identity of the Horseman Death, who now serves Apocalypse with utter devotion. Warren fights his friends until he's tricked into believing he's killed Iceman. This shock to the system snaps him out of Apocalypse's mental conditioning, and he helps X-Factor defeat the Horseman and seize control of Apocalypse's spaceship to use as their new headquarters. Apocalypse is quietly pleased. X-Factor are proving themselves to be among the worthy. While he lets Warren rejoin them, he recruits another one of their members instead, the former Morlock Caliban, who desires nothing more than to be strong. The two depart together. Later that year, the reprint book Classic X-Men, featuring 70 stories with amended and extended scenes written by Chris Claremont, retcons Apocalypse into the backstory of the villain Moses Magnum. In issue 25, which reprints X-Men 119, a flashback shows that Magnum gained his superpowers as one of Apocalypse's experiments in separating the weak from the strong. This will become something of a recurring beat with Apocalypse, who is pretty easy to retcon into just about anyone's backstory. In the present, back in X-Factor, he has a few intra-supervillainous conflicts you don't need to worry about with Marvel heavy hitters like the High Evolutionary and Loki. These smaller appearances are the last ones before Louise Simonson's departure from the franchise. In the final arc of X-Factor before the crossover Muir Island saga and the total relaunch of the book under Peter David, Apocalypse finally makes his big move. This storyline, Endgame, was written in a collaboration between Jim Lee and artist Wills Portacio, with a script by Chris Claremont, and serves to set up a retcon devised by Lee and editor Bob Harris. That the popular new character Cable, a grizzled time-traveling cyborg soldier, is actually the future self of Cyclops' infant son Nathan Christopher Summers. It's worth noting these issues also have a backup feature written by Fabian Niciesa, the Apocalypse Manifesto, with little dossiers written in the voice of Apocalypse about each of the characters. It's a fun precursor to Niciesa's later Strife Strike Files, and I guess explains where Strife gets it. Anyway, Endgame. Assembling a new army of minions called the Riders of the Storm, Apocalypse conquers the inhuman civilization on the moon and establishes a lunar headquarters. From there, he stages an attack on the celestial ship X-Factor seized from him, using a techno-organic virus to sabotage it. The inhumans help X-Factor escape, but the Riders are able to kidnap baby Nathan Christopher and bring him to Apocalypse. Using the baby as bait, Apocalypse lures X-Factor to the moon so he can use his technology to drain their power for himself. 
The reader learns that Apocalypse apparently has reason to fear baby Nathan and intends to kill him. X-Factor and the Inhumans team up to defeat the Riders of the Storm, and Apocalypse is apparently slain by Cyclops and Marvel Girl. But it's too late to save Nathan, who's been infected with the lethal techno-organic virus. A woman called Ascani explains to X-Factor that Nathan is the chosen one in the distant future, and she has traveled back in time to protect him as a sacred duty. She can save Nathan's life by bringing him to the Ascani future for treatment, but they will never be able to return to the past. Seeing no choice, Scott entrusts Ascani with his child, and they disappear. Shortly after this issue, the X-Factor team reintegrates into the X-Men, and the combined group forms the Blue and Gold X-Men teams for the famous 1991 relaunch, and Claremont's departure from the franchise. Apocalypse doesn't return until the following year, in the 1992 crossover event, Executioner's Song. This storyline, coordinated by Fabian Niciesa, Scott Lobdell, and Peter David, pulls the trigger on Endgame, connecting Cable and his identical nemesis, Strife, to the time-lost Nathan Christopher Summers. In this story, the clear implication is that Strife is Nathan all grown up, and Cable is a clone of some sort. This will almost immediately be retconned into the reverse. See the Strife and Cable episodes for details. In any case, Strife believes Scott Summers and Jean Grey abandoned baby Nathan out of selfishness, and cuts a deal with Mr. Sinister to seek revenge. Sinister shapeshifts into Apocalypse and tricks the Riders of the Storm, now called the Dark Riders, into capturing Scott and Jean and taking them to the Lunar Headquarters, where Strife is waiting. They then travel to Apocalypse's temple in Egypt, where we learn Apocalypse has been in a healing slumber since his apparent death. Believing they were following his orders, the Riders inadvertently wake him up early, which leaves him in a highly weakened state. After the X-Men rock his shit, Apocalypse returns to his temple to re-enter Torpor, but is interrupted by Strife, who rants about Apocalypse's bad parenting in the future. Defeating Apocalypse in battle, Strife claims leadership of the Dark Riders by Apocalypse's own code of survival of the fittest. Apocalypse manages to reach a teleportation device and escape. Hilariously, he teams up with the X-Men, X-Force, and the new X-Factor, curing Professor Xavier of Strife's techno-organic infection and helping the heroes stage an attack on his lunar stronghold. During the great battle that ensues, in which both Cable and Strife are apparently killed in an explosion, Apocalypse is mortally wounded by his own Dark Riders. Accepting he's no longer the strongest, Apocalypse asks Warren Worthington to kill him, but Warren refuses. Instead, he abandons Apocalypse to die slowly, alone, and humiliated. Cable has, of course, survived, and begins appearing in a solo Cable series written by Niciesa. We learn what happened to baby Nathan and see the Ascani future for the first time. In this version of the 30th century, Ansaba Nur, known to us as Apocalypse, ruled as a tyrant, and Nathan Dayspring, the Ascani son, aka Cable, was raised by the Ascani sisterhood as the chosen one who would defeat him. When the baby was first brought to them from the past, Mother Ascani, a future version of Nathan's half-sister Rachel Summers, feared the techno-organic virus had advanced too far, and cloned the Chosen One to create a copy of the baby without the virus, just in case. Apocalypse's forces then stormed the Ascani compound and slaughtered almost all present, by mistake seizing the clone baby, a child Apocalypse renamed Strife and raised as his own. In The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, a miniseries written by Scott Lobdell, newlyweds Scott Summers and Jean Grey are pulled into this dystopian future by Mother Iscani's chrono-skimming ability. Under the alias's slim and red dayspring, they spend 12 years raising the true baby Nathan. Meanwhile, we learn that Ansaba Nur's intent is to use Strife, whom he believes to be the true Nathan, as a host when he comes of age. As the ultimate mutant cultivated through centuries of genetic research, Nathan has the only physical body capable of containing Apocalypse's power for eternity. This is where things start to get a bit confusing because of writer change-ups. Did Apocalypse infect baby Nathan with the techno-organic virus to kill him, or to force Cyclops to send him to the future? Why would he infect his desired host with the techno-organic virus in the first place? Was he just covering all his bases? Honestly, don't worry about it.
By the end of the miniseries, and Saba Nur, by this point revealed as a withered ancient man when his fearsome armor is removed, attempts to seize Strife's body, but is infuriated to realize the boy is a clone. His genetic code is an imperfect copy, and he cannot contain Apocalypse forever after all. Still, Ensabiner decides to seize the body temporarily, but the process is interrupted by Slim, Red, and Nathan, and Apocalypse is apparently killed once and for all. When Mother Escani dies shortly thereafter, Scott and Jean are sent back to the past, leaving Nathan alone to continue growing up into Cable. That same month, Asturian Nicias's X-Force 37 provides more insight on Apocalypse's backstory. The Asian sorcerer Saul, one of the immortal mutants called the Externals, do not worry about it, explains Apocalypse is an external as well. And Saul first met the wandering Egyptian warrior Ensaba Nur in the 12th century BC. The two crossed paths in Mongolia, where Saul, then known as Garba Sien, showed Ensaba Nur a miraculous discovery, a celestial spacecraft his own followers had unearthed. And Sabanir decided to steal this power for himself and attacked Garbasien. Believing he'd killed the other mutant, Insabiner found a way inside the ship and departed to become Apocalypse. This is maybe supposed to be the sentient celestial ship, later called Prosh, that X-Factor seized from Apocalypse during Fall of the Mutants, but the timeline on that doesn't really line up. It's possible this story is meant to take place in the 12th century AD, but they talk about Phoenicians, so that also seems unlikely. Don't especially worry about it. The following year, in Cable 19, written by Jeff Loeb, Cable's evil time-traveling son Tyler Dayspring, aka Genesis, there's going to be a lot of people called Genesis in this character file, so just buckle up, has taken command of the Dark Riders and attempts to resurrect Apocalypse in the present. Tyler's defeated by Cable and his allies, but it's implied in the issue's denouement that perhaps Apocalypse is not truly dead after all. Much of 1995 is then consumed by the Age of Apocalypse crossover, in which a time-traveling legion accidentally kills his father Professor Xavier in the past, and creates an alternate timeline where Apocalypse rises to power early, conquering America and turning it into a fascist mutant dictatorship where humans are treated as chattel. Apocalypse himself is more of a background element in this story, and the reality warp is undone by the end of the event. But the sheer real-world popularity of Age of Apocalypse cemented the character as the iconic top-level villain of the X-Men franchise. The following year, in 1996's Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, written by Peter Milligan, we learn that Apocalypse awoke from one of his healing chambers in 1859 in London, where he was discovered by criminals working for the rogue geneticist Dr. Nathaniel Essex. Brought before Essex, Apocalypse was intrigued to learn of the advances in science since his last awakening, including Essex's studies of the human subspecies called mutants, of which Apocalypse now understood himself to be an early example. He transformed Essex using his celestial technology, creating the immortal villain Mr. Sinister, whom he tasked with creating a plague that would exterminate much of the world's population in an effort to force survival of the fittest. Objecting to this plan, Sinister quietly created a virus that targeted Apocalypse instead. This forced Apocalypse to re-enter hibernation, after making it clear to Sinister that further insubordination would not be tolerated. Once Apocalypse was asleep again, Sinister began working on a means to destroy him before his next reawakening. The synthesis of the ultimate mutant, realized over a century later with the birth of Nathan Christopher Summers. Around the same time, Apocalypse returns in the present for the Onslaught crossover, awoken from hibernation in a Scott Lobdell story by his scribe, Ozymandias, a man of living stone who has apparently served Apocalypse since ancient Egyptian times. I do not want to worry about Onslaught right now, but Uatu the Watcher manages to convince Apocalypse he must team up with his archenemy, Cable, to fight the threat Onslaught poses to all reality. Apocalypse tries to defeat Onslaught on the astral plane by severing his connection to the nigh-omnipotent mutant child, Franklin Richards, secretly planning to eliminate the child as a threat as well. Franklin's mother Sue Storm, the invisible woman, figures this out and stops Apocalypse, but at the cost of allowing Onslaught to escape, forcing the heroes to find another way to defeat him. 
Two flashback stories in 1996 further flesh out Apocalypse's backstory. Black Knight Exodus, a one-shot written by Ben Robb, establishes that the immortal mutant Exodus was also one of Apocalypse's experiments in creating a powerful herald during one of his brief awakenings. At the same time, a miniseries called Rise of Apocalypse, written by Terry Cavanaugh, focuses on the early life of Ensaba Nur. Born in a small village called Akaba on the west bank of the Nile, the nameless infant had blue-gray skin and strange mutated facial features. The people of Akaba considered him an abomination and intended to sacrifice him to the gods, but they were interrupted by the arrival of the nomadic tribe called the Sandstormers and their leader Baal. The Sandstormers slaughtered the entire settlement, as was their standard MO, but were surprised to discover the baby, the secret gift of the desert that Baal had been seeking for some time. Baal and his people had escaped from slavery under the new pharaoh Rama Tut, actually the time traveler Kang the Conqueror. Using a jewel stolen from Rama Tut, Baal discovered that the temporal warlord had come to Egypt in this time period specifically to find a child of great power. Baal claimed this child as his own son, naming him Ensaba Nur, an Arabic name which the comic claims means the first one, but which actually translates more properly to the seven lights. As the Arabic language did not exist yet, circa 3000 BC, this must be viewed logically as a leader transliteration of some sort. Baal is a title meaning Lord in several ancient Semitic languages of the Levant, so perhaps one of those languages would be the one to look at, but honestly, don't worry about it. And Sabanur grew up championed by his adoptive father, but disdained by the rest of his new tribe, who saw him as a monster just as his birth tribe did. Finally, after years on the move, the Sandstormers were located by Rama Tut, who dispatched Ozymandias, at this time the normal human general of his armies, to recover the child now grown. There's sort of an interesting parallel here where Apocalypse himself is a prophecy chosen when pursued by time travelers, just as Apocalypse later pursues the chosen one Nathan Summers through time. But most of this will never super matter again. Ozymandias arrived and slaughtered the Sandstormers, but Ensaba Nur and his father Baal were lost him in a cave-in, surviving for weeks beneath the earth. Ensaba Nur was mortally wounded, but somehow survived. This is maybe supposed to be the moment he awakened as an unaging and undying external, because in the X-Force external lore, their external power first activates when they die for the first time. I don't know, guys, I swear you don't need to worry about the externals. Anyway, Baal didn't survive the journey back to the surface, but Ensaba Nur did, and there he cut a deal with Ramatut's Grand Vizier Logos, who wanted to unseat the usurper. Posing as a slave, Ensabanur worked building Ramatut's pyramid until he spotted Ozymandias working as an overseer and challenged him. Ozymandias struck him, sending him falling off the pyramid to his death, only for him to immediately resurrect himself in an apparent miracle witnessed by the other slaves. He was then taken to safety by Nefri, Ozymandias' sister, who was betrothed to Ramatut but had fallen in love with Ensabanur. Eventually, Ramatut captured Ensabanur, Nefri, and Logos. He'd decided not to marry Nefri after all, and instead to wed Sue Storm, because this story ties into the 1963 Fantastic Four time travel story in which Ramatut debuts. Do not worry about it right now. Anyway, Ramatut offered to make Ensabanur heir to all Egypt in exchange for a vow of loyalty. Ensabanur refused and was sentenced to death, but escaped. The Fantastic Four also broke free around the same time, and Ramatut, having lost both his intended bride and his intended chosen one, decided to leave ancient Egypt and return to the future. With him gone, Ensabanur used the jewel his father Baal had once stolen to transform Ozymandias into living stone, imbuing him with cosmic knowledge and bending his will to make him Ensabanur's loyal servant forevermore. Rejected by Nefri, Ensabanur declined an offer to become the new pharaoh of Egypt, and retreated into the desert with Ozymandias, eager to begin a project of ensuring only the strong survive, to build a tribe of beings like himself as they began to emerge. 
Apocalypse's story in the present resumes the following year in Peter David's run on Incredible Hulk. Transforming the Hulk into the newest iteration of his horsemen of war, Apocalypse uses him to attack the New World Order, a secret society bent on world domination, formed by Ozymandias as part of Apocalypse's larger plans. Apocalypse eventually loses control of the Hulk, but considers his latest test of celestial technology a success, and destroys the New World Order as they are no longer useful to him. His next major storyline is in 1999, in the run-up to the crossover, The Twelve. God, what to say about The Twelve. So The Twelve was a mystery introduced by Louise Simonson early in the run of X-Factor. Supposedly, they were prophesied future leaders. The concept came up again in Claremont's Endgame script when baby Nathan was sent to the Ascani future. Otherwise, the plot was mostly forgotten until this storyline in Alan Davis and Terry Cavanaugh's run writing Uncanny X-Men, which legend tells had plot input from Claremont. Apocalypse has found a new set of horsemen, including a new death, who apparently kills Wolverine. After his death, this Wolverine is revealed to be a Skrull imposter. The real Wolverine has been turned into the Horseman of Death. The X-Men discover this in Egypt, where they're investigating the mystery of the Twelve after discovering the diaries of the long-dead precognitive mutant Destiny. The new horsemen and Apocalypse's Skrull allies, do not worry about that, abduct the various members of the Twelve, bringing them to Apocalypse's temple in Akaba. It turns out the Twelve are an engine Apocalypse can use to empower his celestial technology and grant himself omnipotence. Apocalypse planted the prophecy of the Twelve himself in the distant past, using it as bait to lure the mutants he needed into his clutches in the future. His new plan hinges on Nate Gray, the version of Nathan Christopher Summers created by Mr. Sinister in the Age of Apocalypse timeline. As Nate does not have the techno-organic virus, he is a perfected version of Cable and will be the ultimate host body for Apocalypse. Which, again, raises the question of why Apocalypse infected baby Nathan Christopher with the techno-organic virus in the first place, but I refuse to no-prize this together. It is what it is. Apocalypse's merger with Nate Gray is ultimately interrupted by Cyclops and Phoenix. Gene manages to tear him away on the astral plane, and then Scott pushes Nate out of the way, sacrificing himself and becoming the new host of Apocalypse instead. This leads to a very silly series of reality warps called Ages of Apocalypse that you absolutely should not worry about. His plan ultimately foiled, and his pursuit of ultimate power thwarted, Apocalypse slash Cyclops flees via teleportation. This leads directly into the 2000 Revolution, in which Chris Claremont returns to writing duties on both X X-Men and Uncanny X-Men, and Cable joins the team to honor his father's sacrifice. The Cable title is taken over by writer Robert Weinberg for the next 20-ish issues, and there's a wrinkle here that's totally insane but comes up sometimes in trivia about the X-Men franchise. Weinberg wanted to reveal that Apocalypse was the third Summers brother, a mystery set up by Fabian Niciesa in the early 90s and intended to revolve around the character Adam X the Extreme. In Weinberg's conception, the baby who would be named Ensaba Nur was Cyclops and Havoc's older half-brother, born to Corsair and an unknown mutant woman, and had been sent to the distant past via time travel. Marvel did not like this idea, and it never came to pass. But God, can you imagine? Anyway, in the 2001 miniseries The Search for Cyclops, written by Joseph Harris, Ozymandias appears to Cable in Phoenix and tells him the Cyclops apocalypse gestalt has survived. Amnesiac, the new being, has been working on ships off the coast of Africa, and has his memories sparked by an encounter with a disciple of Apocalypse called Aeneas. Remembering Apocalypse's childhood in Akaba, the Gestalt being travels there, with Apocalypse steadily assuming more and more control of the shared mind and suppressing Cyclops. When Jean and Nathan arrive, Jean's able to perform a miraculous feat of telepathy and separate the two consciousnesses. Apocalypse is expelled from Scott's body, and Nathan is able to kill the immortal conqueror, apparently forever, you hear that a lot with Apocalypse, right, by using his psychic weapon, the Scimitar. The death of Apocalypse in the present apparently erases the Ascani future, though Nathan still remembers it. Later stories contradict the idea of the Ascani timeline being erased, so don't super worry about it. 
Despite various attempts by Clan Akaba, the descendants of Apocalypse in the modern age, to resurrect him somehow, the character remains dead for several years. Then in 2006 comes Apocalypse vs. Dracula by Frank Thierry, a historical miniseries about Apocalypse's various conflicts over the centuries with Dracula. No, really, it's kind of fun, it's very weird. The character comes back in the present at the same time, in Cable and Deadpool, written by Fabian Misiesa. Ozymandias returns to Akaba, where he uses his knowledge of the special techno-organic properties in Apocalypse's blood, a plot point in Apocalypse vs. Dracula, to begin a resurrection process using the celestial technology hidden there. Cable, much to the shock of his friends and allies, decides to help resurrect Apocalypse. When Apocalypse reawakens, Cable explains the recent decimation that has left mutant kind almost entirely destroyed. He believes the return of Apocalypse will reunite the fractured remaining mutants against a common enemy. During this story, we also get a fun, if confusing, bit of retconned history, in which we learn that Cable, under the alias The Traveler, had fought Apocalypse throughout time in ancient history, and that it was his own blood, infected with a techno-organic virus, that infected Ansaba Nur. So it's a bit of a paradox, since Apocalypse then gave Baby Nathan that techno-organic virus in the first place. The Traveler executed Ensabiner in the past, but Ozymandias was able to bring him to the Celestial Ship, where Ensabiner's new techno-organic nature finally enabled him to communicate with the strange devices within. The Traveler realized Ensabiner had survived and was able to use his own techno-organics to send the ship into space with Ensabiner still merged into its systems. Eventually, Ensabiner returned to Earth, now fully transformed into Apocalypse. I should note here that previously, in the 1999 Cable Annual written by Carl Bowlers and Michael Higgins, Apocalypse was said to have been infected with the techno-organic virus by Mr. Sinister, who had invented it. Do you see why this character file is making me feel completely insane? Anyway, 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 back in the present, Apocalypse fully regenerates with the help of Ozymandias and decides to become a leader for the newly decimated mutant population. In Peter Milligan's run on X-Men, Apocalypse assembles a new group of horsemen, beginning with Gazer, Polaris, and Sunfire, and offers his own regenerative blood to the 198 mutants on the Xavier School grounds, after using Sunfire's new famine powers to make them starve. Gambit is one of the mutants to accept this offer, and Apocalypse chooses him as the new Horseman of Death. Ozymandias begins to lose faith in Apocalypse as his plans get wackier and wackier, and helps the X-Men get into his base to attack him. While they strike a hearty blow, Apocalypse manages to redirect his ship to the United Nations, where he announces he's invented a plague that will kill all baseline humans. He intended to give 10% of the human race an antidote cultivated from his own blood, but this antidote was destroyed in the X-Men's attack. So Apocalypse offers humanity a choice. If they will voluntarily cull 90% of their population, he'll destroy the virus and let humans and mutants battle it out once more on an equal playing field. While he's waiting for humankind's decision, another confrontation with the X-Men leaves Apocalypse banished through a hole in reality into the void beyond. In a retcon, it turns out he first made contact with the Celestials back in ancient Egypt, while experimenting with the technology Ramatut left behind, and the Celestials appointed him to the role of Apocalypse as part of their larger plan. Now, lost in the space between dimensions, he's contacted by them again, but this plot is dropped immediately as Milligan departs the book and is replaced by writer Mike Carey. In 2010, writer Rick Remender launches Uncanny X-Force with the storyline The Apocalypse Solution, in which Ozymandias and Clan Akaba, unaware that Apocalypse had been saved by the Celestials, or whatever, and considering him to be dead, attempt to resurrect Apocalypse through mystical cloning. Ozymandias begins raising this Apocalypse child in an effort to recreate his master, but he's interrupted by X-Force, who then debate whether or not the child has the right to live. Betsy Braddock argues the child is innocent and should be protected, but teammate Phantom X abruptly executes the child with a gunshot. Secretly, Phantom X secures samples of the Apocalypse child's DNA and makes a new clone, whom he names Evan and begins raising in the time-displaced artificial reality called The World, where Phantom X himself grew up. This character will eventually be called Evan Sabiner, or Genesis. Another Genesis. There's three, that's two. 
He becomes the primary version of Apocalypse for the rest of the decade. I consider him to be a different character, so I won't be covering him here. Over the course of Uncanny X-Force, Apocalypse's employment by the Celestials, as hinted at in earlier stories, is expanded upon, with the role of Apocalypse explained as being the Celestial Gardener, supervising evolution on Earth and thereby furthering the alien god's experiments. And Sabiner was allegedly just one of several people to fulfill this role over the millennia, and the Dark Angel saga storyline depicts Warren Worthington being overtaken by his death persona and temporarily ascending to the role of Apocalypse. Remender also establishes that Apocalypse had a child with Autumn Rolfson, the Famine of the 80s, a 616 equivalent to the Age of Apocalypse's nemesis, aka Holocaust. But it's hard to square this in the timeline given Autumn's age back in the 80s, and I honestly prefer not to worry about it. The real Apocalypse returns to our reality without explanation in 2018, in a backup feature across the various X-Men Black villain one-shots. This story, called Degeneration, is written by Zach Thompson and Lonnie Nadler, and features Apocalypse using celestial technology to once again attempt to create a body he can live in forever. He's then captured by Nate Gray and shunted into the alternate reality called the Age of X-Man. In the ensuing reality warp storyline, Evan Sabiner is killed. Apocalypse, like the others who survive, is sent back to Earth-616 at the end of the event. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Apocalypse is the most prominent of the villainous mutants to accept amnesty and become part of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. He extends his hand in friendship to Charles Xavier in a panel that quickly became iconic, and that's probably the stuff Jonathan and I are talking about in this episode. Apocalypse is appointed as one of the 12 members of the Quiet Council, the leadership body on Krakoa that is meant to be ideologically balanced between all the major mutant political positions. Seated at the Autumn Table with Charles Xavier and Magneto, he represents mutantkind's origins and offers insight from that perspective. He also begins appearing as a regular cast member in Excalibur by Teeny Howard and Marcus Toe, where he attempts to harness the magic of Otherworld, the mystical reality that governs the multiverse. He explains his theory of mutant magic, arguing that the X-Gene is itself a special conduit for magical power, and tasks a new Excalibur team led by Captain Britain Betsy Braddock with aiding him in his research. Approaching the suicidal mutant Julio Richter, Apocalypse takes him on as an apprentice and gives him new purpose, teaching him how to use his mutant power over Earth to connect with primal geomantic magics. Excalibur is opposed by the Coven Akaba, a group of anti-mutant humans led by Ruben Brousseau and Mariana Stern, who have appropriated Apocalypse's magical traditions for themselves. In a nice callback to Remender's Apocalypse Solution, Betsy finds a werewolf cub after Apocalypse has ordered the slaughter of the werewolves, and convinces Apocalypse to spare the baby, arguing a child is an innocent. Howard then finally explains what the hell is up with the externals, establishing them in a clever retcon as a coven formed by Apocalypse, Selene, and others in the pursuit of greater mutant magic. Now that immortality has been achieved by all mutants on Krakoa, Apocalypse sees the externals as outmoded, and uses Richter's power in a ritual that slays four of the other externals, Saul, Cruel, Nicodemus, and Kandra, transforming their bodies into the external gate, a stable portal to Otherworld. This leads into the 2020 franchise-wide event Ten of Swords, directed by Howard and Hickman, in which the mutants of Krakoa are drawn into a supernatural contest against the warriors of Arako, an ancient society of mutants lost long ago to the Hell Dimension Amenth. In an extensive retcon, Hickman and Howard established that Krakoa and Arako were once the living island Okara, and a mutant civilization thrived there in ancient times, the tribe Apocalypse had sought to cultivate. He married the warrior called Genesis, and they had four children, war, pestilence, famine, and death, the original horsemen. After Okara was sundered in two in a great conflict, Arako and its people spent millennia fighting back the demons of Amenth. Genesis took her children there to lead the war, telling Apocalypse he was too weak to join them. She tasked him instead with remaining on Earth and ensuring that mutant kind would evolve to be strong. 
the better to eventually reunite with the Iraqi. Now, corrupted by the dark god Annihilation, Genesis has betrayed her people and sold them to Amanth. As the Ten of Swords tournament proceeds, the Omniversal Magistrix Opaluna Saturnine manipulates both parties until an ideal solution is reached. Genesis is freed from Annihilation's control, and she and Apocalypse depart for Ammon to continue defending Earth from demonic incursion. The Araki are sent back to their world of origin, Earth 616, where they begin the uneasy process of finding peace between their warlike society and the contemporary culture of the mutants we know. Apocalypse has remained off-page for the three years since, but he's due to return for the upcoming Fall of X in the one-shot Heralds of Apocalypse, written by Al Ewing. In Ewing's X-Men Red, a book about Storm assuming an uneasy leadership role among the Iraqi, Genesis has already made violent moves toward returning to her people, and it is as yet unclear whether she and Apocalypse remain on good terms. As recontextualized and reimagined by Howard and Hickman, Apocalypse has enjoyed a new level of popularity as an unlikely anti-hero, where once he was the most terrifying villain in the X-Men canon. Whether this new status quo for the character will persist remains to be seen. But no matter what happens, he will endure, and he will grow stronger. It is what he does. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back with Jonathan Hickman. This is such a treat. Thank you again for doing this. I'm on my best behavior. <laughs> and real hard. Uh, I think that one of the things that happens when a creator has a bit of an air of mystery, which I think you've had since you were like, social media, let's not do that anymore, is people are always just like, what is he thinking? What is he? Th so it's a treat to get to talk in kind of a long form way. I hope everyone listening was able to follow that accounting of Apocalypse's character history. Almost none of that matters, just FYI. Like, there's very little of it that you need to worry about, particularly when we're talking about this character because of all the work Teeny and Jonathan did in really reframing him entirely. That starts, to some extent, with well, actually, it starts kind of in issue two of your run with the Summoner character coming in and all of the Arako stuff starting to be seeded, but... The big moment, I think, was the Crucible story. I'd love to talk just a little bit about that issue generally and sort of your, your concepts about it, how that came to you. That was probably the most polarizing issue of your run. I loved it, and uh, most people I know loved it, but certainly it had its detractors. So I'm just curious to hear you speak about it a little bit. Well, I mean, obviously, it's a rational response to have a huge aversion to the what actually happens in the issue which is the like a teenage girl getting beaten to death in public it's not just that she dies and he kills her it's the way in which it happens which it's almost like christ and satan in the desert mm-hmm which is why Apocalypse is so great. He kept giving her opportunities to not go through with it, right? Right. And the idea was, was that she... So the character is one of the Guthrie kids who was depowered during... Um, the M day. Yeah, House of M. Melody, Arrow, the one that Claremont added out of nowhere in uh, the reload period because she had just never previously existed, but it's fine, who cares? That was kind of a fun pull because not only had she lost the power, not only was she like the Guthrie who got depowered, but she also had lost her code name by then because like they'd reused the code name Arrow for the Chinese superheroine who's now a very famous Marvel snap card. Right. 
one of the worst things that can happen to you as a superhero character is you lose your code name and don't get a new one, right? Because then it's like, we're well, not even the trademark anymore. I was wondering about that because there are so many characters who were more high profile, decimation, deep powerings, Danny Moonstar, characters you could have used for that who have a similar aesthetic but who are more famous. What I assumed was that the point was that this is a so-called insignificant character in the grand scheme, right? Was that part of the factor for you? When I, when I made the decision, uh, when I was thinking about who it could be, I don't remember if I put it to the slack or not, actually. I don't know if I ask for suggestions or anything like that. I think I did not. Because I definitely don't think that would have been what the consensus was. You don't think Melody Guthrie would have been the top suggestion? <laughs> Probably not. Right. The reason why she's perfect is because she's insignificant. Her powers are perfect for the final scene. With the flight, yeah. Her brothers and sisters are all super powered. And she had that taken from her. And she can't even have dinner with her family without being reminded of the fact that she used to be like that and now she's not. That she was female had nothing to do with it, although that obviously added with the look. It adds a layer to the visual, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but that she was also a Guthrie and they're all kind of salt of the earth, like pull yourself up out of Harlan County. It just was all kind of perfect for this delicate, sweet character to fight to the death so that she could be who she was supposed who she was born to be. Yes. So she could reclaim what was taken from her, not by her actions or any actions directly related to her. She was just a mass casualty. In an act of God. That's exactly right. And it also just to bring this full circle, it was also the, it, it, like Scarlet Witch fans have a real problem with bringing back up the House of M stuff. Mm -hmm. But like, I, I try to explain this to the writers about continuity and how it works. This is a tangent and I apologize, but it matters. No, this podcast is all about tangents, hon. Go on as long as you want. Newer writers, they think that they write something in a comic book and that comic book gets drawn and then printed and shipped and published and all of that kind of stuff. And they think that they've done something that's become canon. Mm -hmm. That's not how any of this works. There are stories you have to worry about and stories you don't have to worry about is how I put it on this show. There's 60 years of contradictions in the Marvel Universe. Continuity is what people remember and what sticks. And Scarlet Witch would never have gotten past the House of M stuff, no matter how many people wrote comic books about how she was a better They've person. tried, and it never works, because it's it her most take... famous story. You have to address it if you're going to move past it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Like, you have to actually write a story that is as good as that story about going the other way. And people had a problem because I brought it up. But the reason why I kept bringing it up was because we knew that we were going to race it. Fix it. Yeah. You can't do it in a vacuum. And so, and so that's why, again, why, why this character was perfect because it also reseeded all of that, you know, mm -hmm. pretender, pretender, all of that stuff. These innocent victims of that event who like 
Melody Guthrie has never met Wanda Maximoff. You know, like she was just a total bystander who lost everything. That's exactly right. And and Scarlet Witch may have saved the world in the period of time in between that happening and now. And it doesn't change the fact that if Melody meets her, she will be the most evil person that she's ever met in her entire life. Right. Right. And so and so it's also a story about that without being about that. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the other stuff that was cooking in the background. I wanted something that was the other side of of what happened in House of X number five, which was these people died for a reason in a glorious way to save their nation and their people. And they were resurrected in all their glory without any imperfections, unless of course, you know, you like wearing sunglasses and having optic blast and all that kind of stuff. Right. Right. Like if you want an imperfection, you can keep it. Right. If it, if it's, if, yeah, if it's, if it's central to who you are, like with him or Chamber, are, or, I liked yeah. when Vita had karma, keep the amputation because it's part of who she is. I thought that was smart. The point of it is that it's your choice, not someone else's choice. Right. right. Like that's, that's the point of it. And so I wanted it to contrast uh, and work along with that, where if you get reborn and like, like we made, you can't kill yourself, right? Like that's not a, you don't get to do that and re-get your powers and all of that kind of stuff. We didn't want a bunch of depowered mutants killing themselves. Jumping off buildings, right? Like that's not an uplifting right. message. Sure. I mean, it would have been a cool scene if a thousand mutants jumped off the ledge of a, you know, a cliff of Krakoa into the ocean and then they all got reborn. God, imagine how polarizing that would have been. <laughs> sure. Right. But, but like this was a version of it where you showed that you were a person who would fight the tenacity, the commitment. I knew that it would be incredibly polarizing and I know that it's not good right but it felt right when you read it right like it's it, i mean yeah like you're like this is part of you is like this is barbaric this is ancient in the way that apocalypse is it feels like the roman Colosseum. it has that sure. kind of quality to it but at the same time i was moved and i was like i'm so glad that Charles shook hands with apocalypse because no one else would have thought of this sure and for melody guthrie it's the most empowering and incredible thing that's ever happened to her. And it would only have happened if they let that ancient darkness. Sure. In. And there's this, there's a scene in there too, where, you know, uh, Sam and, and, and Husk is like, they're screaming to stop it and trying mm -hmm. to get, defend their, their sister, but, and the other people are kind of holding them back. And it's like, everybody's responses to this thing inside of the story and internally were correct. It leads Kurt to have a complete crisis of faith in his religion. Sure. It's a cosmic, seismic kind of thing, but I think that's why it provokes so many strong opinions. I just think at the end of the day, the reason why it is a success and not a failure, even though it is so dark and all of that kind of stuff, is that it feels like an X-Men story and that it's trying to make a very complicated point. Mm-hmm. You know, I know it was, it was divisive in the room, you know? I mean, I know that some of the other writers, like, they they disagree with this conceptually, you know? I mean, Spurrier's first issue when he comes in is about how much he disagrees with it conceptually. Sure, sure. There's a variety of opinions, and that's what makes this feel real as opposed to didactic. 
Well, sure. I fundamentally see this. This is the thing. This this is like my superpower of being a somewhat moderately successful writer. I am perfectly capable of authentically writing shit I hard disagree with. Sure. Like I I find the idea behind the crucible offensive, right? Right. Narratively, I understand it and I understand why the characters would do it. And I understand Apocalypse's position and I can write it from that position to where it came across as a complicated and glorious thing. And when she flies for the first time, like- Oh, I cried. I cried. That issue absolutely wins. And, and like, I remember writing it and I was like, I can't believe I'm writing this shit. (laughs) (laughs) But you also knew, again, it's about having the beginnings and the endings. You knew the Crucible is not going to go on forever. Just like you knew that we're calling her the pretender because we're going to reconcile her with mutant kind eventually. Yeah. And so the Crucible is, I mean, it, it speaks to Apocalypse generally, right? The idea that Apocalypse is our forebear in some way that the barbaric harsh brutal conditions of the ancient world are something you evolve out of and he is evolution focused but he can't quite see that his perspective is so ancient well he's a pure darwinist which is funny because of course he predates darwin by like thousands and thousands of years well the argument is he's an evolutionist Mm -hmm. and if you're an evolutionary biologist Everything that he's arguing makes perfectly good sense, but it's not what a domesticated human being who has lived through the age of enlightenment understands, you know, like it's not human. It's a contradiction, but it's a beautiful contradiction. One of my favorite lines in the whole Krakoan age, again, similarly, like an immortal character is in X-Corp when Tini has Celine say, the real problem is agriculture. It made men think that they could start <laughs> making decisions. It's a funny line, A, because it's funny, but B, the point here that's being made is that this person is a space alien. Like she is so far removed from our social mores. And I think Apocalypse is like that. Too. And what's been interesting about both Apocalypse and Selene in the Krakoan age is the ways that they can illuminate questions that the modern characters aren't going to ask and that the modern characters then have to grapple with. Like, we can all agree agriculture is probably a net good, right? But you get where Selene's coming from. Similarly, we can all agree that asking people to dash themselves against the rocks in order to get their powers back is a little crazy. But what Apocalypse is asking is how important is it to you to be who you are meant to be? Prove it to me. Mm -hmm. That's a question that needs to be asked of everyone in this fictional setting because what Krakoa is on some level is the end game of like, this is who we are meant to be. We are meant to be something bigger. We're meant to create something great. And to get there, I think you have to ask the questions of like, how bad do we want it, right? So I quite liked it. I guess it's just nice to talk to creators about how complicated these stories can be because a lot of the time people want a yes or no answer or a black and white thing of like, was this issue morally good? Is it okay that I liked it? That kind of stuff, which to me is not the interesting thing about fiction. I'm looking to see, I couldn't remember, I'm looking to see at the end of the Crucible issue If it was Apocalypse that welcomes her back after she's reborn, and it is. It is, yeah. 
he's proud of her. Yeah, 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 yeah. So again, again, Apocalypse being proud of you. Uh, yet, yet another complicated, uh, yet another... right? Exactly. And that I think leads us into Araco and Ten of Swords. In the first episode of this podcast, which is about Betsy Braddock and is with Teeny, it was leading into Ten of Swords. The event was about to happen. Okay. We talked about the process of pitching Excalibur and how her initial pitch had been about Apocalypse. And specifically, like, what does it mean for Apocalypse, the immortal evolutionist, to get everything he wants in the same way that you were asking, what does it mean if Xavier gets what he wants and Magneto gets what he wants? So the groundwork is laid there. We get a lot of data pages and stuff throughout Excalibur where we dig into his mindset, his beliefs on magic and culture and all of that. But it's the introduction of his family that I think really resonated strongly with readers. Where did that all come about for you? Just to go back for a second, I was really shocked when Teeny, I don't know if she's ever told you, like we had like a draft in our in our first retreat where mm-hmm. we picked our teams and yeah. we put all the characters out on there and you got to pick your team. And I obviously didn't know Teeny at the time. Now that I know her very well, you know, it's like, oh, of course you're going to pick Apocalypse. (laughs) But I didn't know her at the time. And I found it to be just such a fascinating choice. For your first draft pick. Yeah. I mean, I just, I found it fascinating. Obviously all of this came out of that. But as she was exploring everything that she was exploring in Excalibur, and we were just kind of talking about it, we just kind of started playing around with the ideas of where we could go with all of that. And they all knew that I think I'm fine talking about all of this. It's been four years. I think we, I think we're we're okay. I'm pretty sure everyone knew really, really early on that the plan was to take apocalypse off the table at some point so that we could bring him back in the big third act thing of, that's happening right now with Al's doing the return. Right, right, right. You wanted you wanted the end times, right? Well, here they right. come, right? So the apocalypse, the revelation is coming. Yeah. Right, right. To quote East of West in our X-Men podcast. <laughs> so everybody kind of knew. And so we were always just kind of talking about that and fleshing it out. But I have always thought since like early, early on with Apocalypse, like even from when we first met the first horsemen of the Apocalypse that we met in the comic books. And then even more so when Rick Remender and Jerome started doing X-Force and we had a whole new set of horsemen of the Apocalypse. And I know that there had been other ones through the years and and all of that. It's one of those things where it's like, you're going to write an Apocalypse story. Hey, let's do some new Gotta have some horsemen. Hard to follow the original unless you're going to do something extreme, which Remender certainly does. He invents some very memorable characters to be part of that new assortment. Rick's a very good writer. And Jerome is a fantastic fucking artist. Well, gorgeous pages, yeah. You know, as soon as that issue came out and there was the Minotaur one, and I mean, everything just looked so good. And it's like, this is cool as shit. I don't remember... That came out in like 2010, right? Mm-hmm. And so I obviously big X-Men fan, always, always taking everything in that everybody is doing. But that terrible X-Men Apocalypse movie came out. Yes. With poor Oscar Isaac in like six feet of makeup. 
the first 10 minutes of that were like Stargate Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Right. And you had the old kind of like it it looked like it looked like Stargate Apocalypse. That's exactly like that's the perfect. And I remember like watching the first 10 minutes of that movie and I was like, I am so fucking into this right this now. This rules, and then the rest of the movie is awful. and then it's shit, right? Yeah, right? it's just some shit. But I remember like walking out of that and I'm like, that's a good idea. Like the first horseman of the apocalypse first versions of those guys, which is why when we had them designed, when Pepe did all of that stuff, we had them. I was like, look, go look at this movie. We want something that feels Egyptian the same way that he feels Egyptian, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so I I just kind of was playing around the idea of, oh, okay. He loses them at some point and they're his actual kids, which means that he must have been married and what a bad bitch that must be. Right. And, you know, like, right? and so it would just, it just kind of snowballed from there. And Teeny and I would talk about it and go back and forth. And then I think when I finally kind of, I think it was C2, it was the last comic book convention before COVID when we had a little retreat at C2E2 is when we really kind of tore into the 10 of swords of it all. And obviously it sprawled from that because COVID happened. And then the whole event got expanded because the line had been cut down and Marvel was like, do 15 more issues of this or whatever it was. Well, I mean, there was a, there was a period of time there where diamond went down. Yeah. And the conversations inside of Marvel were half of the books were going to get gone and none of them were going to be X-Men books because we were the best selling books. And so we needed to do a big kind of event thing and expand it out. So we we blew it up. That is the month that Nanny outsold the Avengers, as I like to say on the show, where Hellions was like number two or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And and so and so um now obviously that didn't happen. Like what happened was everybody started reading even more comics and everything got uncanceled and all of that kind of stuff. I'm not even sure that it ever became public that they were going to cut the line like that. So, you know, keep that a secret between us or whatever, but <laughs> sorry. No, um, it's okay. I mean, I mean, do you want me to cut that or can I leave it in? No, no, no it's, fine. Okay. it's fine. Just checking, just checking. I don't even know if anybody, that seems like of a different age. I think everybody understood that the industry went through a lot of shit in COVID. I mean, one thing I think about is the issues we lost of Dawn of X because of the skip months that started happening because of COVID. The fact that every one of those titles should have had three or four more issues, I just like long for that timeline for many reasons, not related to X-Men, but also because it would have been nice to see a little more space for each of those books. Well, I mean, that's when it became obvious too, when I was going to have to leave the line because of what Marvel needed me to work on and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, Nobody wants to hear about. I think everybody wants to hear about it, well, but I'm not going to pry. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's... Pro- no, let's just put paid, though, to the notion that you left in some acrimonious way or that you were upset with the other writer. There's all these conspiracy theories, and it's just none of them are true, is my sense. I don't know the conspiracy theories, but I love everybody in that room. And I was asked, Marvel asked me to stick around sort of and uh but i i i knew 
what they also expected sales wise and that I needed to be doing like event size books for what I get paid and all of that kind of nonsense. Uh, there's just a whole lot built into it, but again, inside baseball stuff that fans are just not conscious of. Well, it, it doesn't make any sense in retrospect. Like it all happened during COVID, right? <laughs> so, so in retrospect, it looks like it looks like nonsense, but it's completely logical in the in the time that it happened. But no, I mean, I, there's nothing. I, I don't. There's no bad feelings. There is all I'm saying. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't talk to those guys about how they feel about me. That seems like it would be. <laughs> I don't call Ben Percy up and, hey, Ben, do you- Be like, hey, uh, Ben, what do you think? Do you love me? What, <laughs> <laughs> one that happened recently that got, it was actually the 60th anniversary uh, X-Men event happened on Marvel Unlimited, which I participated. It was I was lucky enough to have them ask Mark Silvestri my question, which made my day. That is a beautiful guy, man. Like he is right? Been, Stunning. Is I am always so into A, because he drew my favorite issues of Uncanny X-Men, but B, because I'm always just like, I mean, I Googled, I was like 60. What? That's not possible. Nicest guy. Like the night, like <laughs> legitimately, <laughs> the first time I met him was at the image anniversary thing. And he, he met me and I met him. And then he just sat down and hung out with me. Like for no reason, mm -hmm. just wanted to chat. And I was like, oh, sure. oh, oh. I was like, are we doing this? And yeah, like, know, I, I guess like, this is yeah, happening. Just, just so nice. So nice. He seems nice. So there was that one moment where you were asked about Moira and about like whether you always intended for her to be bad or whatever. And you were like, no, my plans changed really or whatever. And people interpreted that immediately as like, oh, he's furious about the making Moira the oh. Borg queen or whatever. And I was like, I don't think that's what he meant. I think he meant once you get into a room with a lot of other people, stories change quickly. Well, first of all, it's unfair for me to like try and lord some s sort of authorship over people whenever I'm out of the room. If they have a better, best idea wins, you know? And if, right. if they come, but the question was, was was Moira always meant to be the big bad guy? I think was the way the question yeah. was phrased. And the answer to that is no, no one will ever guess. I doubt very seriously that anyone will guess who the originally the big bad guy <laughs> was supposed to be because it's so incredibly shocking. But uh, we went left instead of right. But that was why I was still in, in the office. You, like you helped them brainstorm for like two years of stories after you left is my understanding. Well, I tried, I tried very hard to not tell people what I would do, but how, what's a good version of what they're talking about doing. Like, like I, I don't, I don't want to, I wasn't trying to write books through people. And that was, um, I, I, I don't like that. I wouldn't like that if somebody did that to me. And so I would try very hard not to do that to other people. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know, I'm sure stuff has evolved since sure. I left, but I'm 100% behind those guys and support them. It doesn't seem that far afield from what you were doing is I guess my, like it's different because it's different writers, but with Moira, the question is like, for me, it's not whether she was the big bad, but like, I think she was always kind of sinister, right? In House of X, she's a little sinister. And I, between what you did and what Ben has since done, 
I think she's become one of the most fascinating characters in the franchise because she's so complicated. Like, is she evil? Is she broken? What is it? You know, there's lots of questions that I think are all. Yeah, her experience is singular in a way that no one else's is. She was the center of the universe literally for a thousand years. No, like it's not even narcissism because it's true. Like no one else has ever had that experience. And also she's been around longer than anybody but Apocalypse, you know? So, I mean, anyway, just to say it again, there's no acrimony or anything like that. I know that. I just, it's good sometimes because people are going to listen to this and I like to put paid to stuff like that because it's just, it's silly. We'll get more into Moira and Apocalypse and the questions because there's a couple of good questions about that. You really should ask every X-Men writer that comes on here how they feel about me and then make a super cut. I will in the future. Yeah. No, I was, I'm, <laughs> listen, I'm going, I'm literally driving to Anaheim with Teeny and Leah tomorrow and I will get a full accounting of exactly how they feel about you right now and I will let you know. I haven't spoken to Leah in a while. I need to catch up with her. But did Leah ever tell you what the title of her book was actually supposed to be? Grindhouse of X. We did the Boom Boom episode. So so angry. I was so angry about that. I was like, why would you not call it that? That was one of those that I was like, that's an A plus idea. I don't understand. That's a sales thing though, right? Like I remember Teeny had pitched the secret X-Men one shot as the unwanted X-Men or X-Men second class and sales nixed both <laughs> as the ones who didn't get voted in. She's like, I do understand that like sales thought unwanted or second class were probably not attractive titles for a comic book you wanted people to buy. She's like, but I thought they were funny. I'm like, they were funny. You know, that'll happen sometimes. You know, they at least let the subtitle be the grindhouse of X or whatever when you opened the comic. So there was that. I loved that book though. I think that's the best thing Leah's done for Marvel. It's just so purely fun. I think the lesson there is, do you ever watch The West Wing? Yeah. Oh, I'm 35. I watch The West Wing with my mom every week. There's that episode where the slogan is basically, let Bartlett be Bartlett. Yeah. Let Leah be Leah. Let Leah be Leah is the lesson there. (laughs) Don't try and... Stop telling her what to do. Let her do whatever the hell she wants. I'm really excited about Power Girl. I think that's an ideal Leah Williams project. Yeah, I mean, I just think I just think you just got to let her let her fly. So with Ten of Swords, you also created the Iraqi really big seismic shift for X-Men history for the franchise. I was very skeptical when they first came in. Not the idea of it, but when like millions of them came to Earth at the end, I was like, well, doesn't this, isn't this going to mess up the metaphor stuff? Like, how is this? And a couple months into everything Al's been doing with them, I was like, never mind. I am a fool for ever doubting this team. How did that all come about for you? And what was sort of your thought process there? I loved the idea of half of the mutants being trapped in the ultimate Darwinist experience of basically being trapped in hell and having to become these ultimate warrior mutants in this ultimate warrior mutant society that in the end, apocalypse might not be fit for, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the, here's apocalypse doing the good work of Darwin on earth trying to create mutants who are fit enough to survive while back home his wife and his kids have become part of a society that it's all apocalypses and they think he's soft. 
Well, right. When she says to him in the flashback, like, you're not strong enough. You have to stay Perfect. here. Perfect. It's so good. And so that was the idea. And then the idea was behind the scenes, apocalypse becoming apocalypse, you know? Like this idea that when he's off panel, that he's busy becoming this version of apocalypse that's not the child version of apocalypse that we've suddenly grown to appreciate and love. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that was that's kind of the idea behind it. That's a lot of fun. I'm trying to think of what else to ask before we get into the question. I mean, I could ask you a million questions about everything you ever wanted to do with these stories, but that's a question for like you and me over a pint. I think not for well, a sure, podcast. or 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 five years from now when it's when not, it's not raining on anybody else's parade who's currently writing the story. Yeah, I did in preparation for this do a little experiment where in my head I wrote down what were the important X-Men comics with Apocalypse. What are your answers for that? I had five. I had five chunks of books that I thought were the important ones. And then I went and checked and saw what I added to it. So my five that that made the list were, of course, you know, X Factor five and six through around the birth of Archangel. Follow the mutants and all of that, right? Right, right. So, so that whole chunk of of uh, Butch and Wheezy and Walt doing uh, really cool stuff. That, like, I thought the concept of X Factor wasn't good. No, Wheezy agrees with you. I mean, she spent ten issues fixing it once they brought her in, which I think is really interesting, right? She's an editor first. Like, she came in like, I'm going to fix this thing. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first chunk. And then my second chunk was X Factor 65 through 68, which was when they sacrificed Kate. With baby Nathan. Right. And and Wilsh is drawing it. And, and this is pre, pre-image comics. So this was right before they all leave. Yeah. Yeah. This was Jim and and uh and Mark on X-Men books and Wilsh on this book and Rob on X-Force. And so it was it was like it was like when the X-Men books were the biggest shit around, right? Still a Guinness record that no one has ever cracked. And I remember reading those books when they came out and I was like, this was, that was really, really freaking cool, right? And Apocalypse dies, you know? Yeah. Uh, or seems to. Die. Uh, and then number three on my list was Age of Apocalypse, which, duh. Duh. Number four on my list was Remender and Opinion's X-Force stuff. And number five on my list was the House of X stuff that we did. That's my list too. In terms of anything you would need to read for this character, those are my list. What else did you add though? What I left out when I went back and looked was there is a Wolverine jungle adventure comic oh book. Oh my God. <laughs> that Mike Mignola drew. That yes. Apocalypse the bad guy in it. It came out in 89. It is amazing. Find a copy of it. It's nonsense, but it's like... Absurd, but yeah. But it's absolutely beautiful. And then the other thing, uh, I had Stargate Apocalypse on there later on. But then I had Apocalypse the 12. I was going to ask about the 12. Is that why there's 12 Quiet Counselors? <laughs> no. <laughs> but... Okay, because that's been my conspiracy theory from the very... Is that Apocalypse was building the real 12 on Krakoa. I, I, I do love the symmetry of it. The thing that came out of 
the 12 that I thought was important was Destiny's Diaries. Yes, was what, for sure. What I thought was important. And in Inferno, obviously, you brought that home in a big way. And then the other important thing in the history of Apocalypse, I would say, was Image Comics being founded in 1992, <laughs> which pretty much begat Age of Apocalypse in 95. Yeah. Age of Apocalypse is fine, you know? Generation Next is the best Generation X. That's the best thing in it, for sure. And it's the best that Gen X ever is as a book. Yep, yep. I agree. I agree. I guess I do have one more question before we get into the Q&A. That's my own question, which is about the phalanx. Okay. Talk about a 90s mess, right? Like, <laughs> what made you want to... Where, where did, like, that angle come in? The homo novissima, tying that together with Nimrod, all of that stuff. How did the phalanx and, like, fixing the phalanx, making the phalanx make sense, enter into your conception of all this? Well, I was going to do a... 12 issue Imperial Guard. Yes, series. the long lamented. That would have been about nothing but that. Gotcha. But that would have started going into production around when I knew that I wasn't going to be staying. And so there was really no point in me. At some point, you stop planning shit. Sure. Because it's not helpful. My biggest miss on this show in terms of things I predicted is like two weeks before it was announced that you were leaving. I was like, Hickman's not going anywhere. Not with all this Shi'ar stuff he's set up. He's going to do a space book. <laughs> so I was I was on the wavelength. Yeah, no, I mean, I was absolutely going to do that book. I, I, I was going to that, do that book and another book. I was actually not going to be writing an X book in the middle of, of when I was doing all of this stuff. I was going to write a big Marvel Universe book, and then the Imperial Guard book. And the Marvel Universe book would have been a flip book where half of it would have taken place in the mutant side of things and the other half would have kind of been like an Avengers book. Interesting. Or a new Avengers book, right? Both of those things got shelved, which sucks because as much as I like the beginning stuff, I really wanted to do Bobby and Sam in space. <laughs> well, that is one thing that I do think is sad is, and this is in part your fault, because when you give someone a baby, this happens. But Sam has been a little bit AWOL in this era, and I know people do miss it. They keep trying. They put him in the vote. They're like, vote him onto the X-Men, but nobody does. <laughs> well, people are wrong. I don't know what to say. Discord moderator Luis Lopez will be very thrilled to hear you say that. I love those two characters so much, I stuck them in an Avengers book. You sure <laughs> did, yeah. I mean, when I did the uh, Cannibal episode, actually, it was interesting. My guest for that, Zoe Tanel, she's a little bit younger than I am, and that was the first time she encountered those characters. Because if you're coming into comics in that period, you're not reading X-Men, you're reading Avengers. So she got to know them as an Avengers fan because she was reading your Avengers. So that's kind of a fun. And then she went back. Sure. But, you know, I love what Al's doing in space right now, though. So I'm with I need, and I, need, I need to be careful what I say about that because I know he's in that stuff. Yeah, right so now. we can leave that for the most part. I guess I was just very grateful that anyone took a moment to explain the relationship between the technarchy and the phalanx and how it works because... My God, let me tell you, for this show, like when I did the Warlock episode, trying to make all of that make sense is tough. So I appreciated that you did it. Well, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I really like to do, though. I like to clean up messes. Mm -hmm. I know that some people don't think that's true or, or that they don't give a shit. 
Well, you talk about comics about comics, and that's like something that could be comics about comics if you're not careful. But what I loved about this is you created something so new out of the mess, you know? That's the something old, something new at the same time. Like, that's the way you had to sell that stuff. You also, I'm a huge Captain Britain fan. I know you are too, and I love whenever you do, like, Secret Wars. Just like, here's Jamie Braddock as Captain Britain for no particular reason. I'm just going to do it because it's fun. Why not? And actually, the family man asked, well, actually, you know what? That brings us into our... First question, Megara Frost writes, hello, Connor and esteemed guest Jonathan Hickman. First off, I'd like to say thank you to both of you for your work. Connor, this podcast and its discord have given me a space to feel like my queer readings of the X-Men are valid. I'm a closeted lesbian who lives in a small suburb with no real life X-Men fans to discuss with, and especially not any queer ones. So it's great to have that place to bond with people. With your release date being in late May, I have high hopes this will drop around my 20th birthday. Oh, well, happy birthday if it does. And, you know, things will get better. 20 is a shitty age and you have your whole life ahead of you. Don't worry too much about it. Mr. Hickman, House of X, Powers of Ten is what solidified me as an X-Men fan. I grew up a fan of the movies and enjoyed whatever knowledge my dad shared with me, but I didn't begin reading until June of 2022 when I jumped in blind with the Hellfire Gala. I went back to read Morrison and then skipped all the way up to your stuff. The book really sunk its talents into me and I've been on this wild ride ever since. My question's about Apocalypse and Genesis. What made you decide to recharacterize him as the ultimate wife guy? Will we get to see more of him and his children? I'd love to see more of what they think of their dad using their names as mantles for other mutants. Much love to both of you, Meg, on the Discord. And we talked a little bit about the inspiration, but I thought the question about the kids was interesting. What do you... What's your thought process on him creating Horseman successively? Like, do you think it's an attempt to recapture that? Like, what is it? Well, I think there's probably a portion of him who thinks they're all gone. And not coming back. They're lost. And so it's a way of memorializing and, you know, it's, 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 um, the apocalypse foundation scholarship fund for <laughs> for troubled boys and girls for, yeah right for right. sketchy, sketchy mute kids but I, I i think i think it's a real bummer if you're a horseman of the apocalypse because you're never going to like it doesn't come with an instruction manual and you're never you don't know this but you're never going to be a good enough death to be his death even warren is never going to be quite good enough yeah I liked it in Excalibur also as a counterpoint to how family-oriented that book is and how much of it is about the Braddock family legacy and Betsy and Brian and Megan and Brian and Megan's daughter and all of that and how, like, family creates that. Realizing Apocalypse had a family, too, was such a shocking thing that I really enjoyed. Did Teeny say whether or not she wanted heavy Braddock stuff and Jamie and all of that? Or did we convince her of that? She said that Apocalypse was what she raised first. And then part of the meeting was also, what are we going to do with Betsy and Conan? And how are we going to deal with the Psylocke problem? And then you were like, well, wait, what if Betsy's Captain Britain? And that then Teeny was like off to the races because she loves the Alan Moore Captain Britain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like Jamie is one of the underutilized I agree. I just did a five-hour episode on Jamie Braddock. I'm with you. If you've got time at some point, it sounds great at 1.5x, so you don't have to actually spend five <laughs> hours. I know that Teeny came up with the codename Monarch. Well, I mean, I was so hot and heavy for all of that other world stuff. I love it, too. 
Like I had to be very careful. That thing that I was talking about trying not to do where I, I don't want to write your book. I, I had to be very careful not to like, like bang on Teeny about that stuff because it's so cool. I love it. Like all of that stuff. All those realms she created. That's what I'm saying. Like there's so much there. I feel like, I feel like that should have been even more of a thing. Listen, I wanted 50 issues in Knights of X. I'm with you. Yeah. So. I have pitched, I have pitched in every single Marvel retreat I've been in. Whenever somebody starts talking about vampires, I'm like, you need to, uh, you need, need to, to go to Sevalith. You need to go to other world and you need to see the real, the real dude. The real I, deal. Yeah. I actually, I actually wrote that into an issue of gods the other day. So <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, very cool. I'm very excited about that book. I can't wait to see what the hell it is. And Meg, in terms of will you see them again, if you are not 100% caught up, Al Ewing is doing a book called Heralds of Apocalypse. It's a one shot that's leading into Fall of X, and uh, they are coming back. In fact, you should read this week's X-Men Red as we're recording. It's the 11th of May right now. One question I actually have while we're on the subject of Araco is why do they speak English, Jonathan? Uh, because that's what uh, we print the books in. <laughs> I assumed it's like Saturnine cast a spell or something, but you know, it's, it's, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's a fantastic, re uh, I can no prize it together, but it is the one thing it's like, why? <laughs> Gene, uh, Gene translated everything, you know, telepathically. Uh, sure. Yeah. 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 Wilson Hayworth writes, greetings, Connor and Jonathan Hickman. First, thank you both so much for all your work. Jonathan's run in the Krakoan era in general was a lifeline for me during the pandemic. Oh, this actually gets into it. My question is about Apocalypse's love of the letter A. I'm not a historian, but a quick Google search shows Apocalypse should be a good deal older than the modern letter A. Yet this guy's so quick to just slap a giant A on anything. Even when he's trying to embrace a mutant language, he's still keeping that A in the name. Also very important, was this something he's been rocking for centuries, or did he do the big A belt after Charles slapped an X on his child army? To simplify, is Apocalypse petty, or does he just have bad fashion sense? Thanks, Wilson. I like the A belt. I think it's cute. The letter alpha is pretty old, but this is a general problem with Apocalypse, which is that Terry Cavanaugh did the Rise of Apocalypse miniseries back in the day. And, you know, Ensaba Nur, first of all, doesn't mean the first one. It means the Seven Lights, which is Arabic and means dawn, basically. So like the morning light, the first one, also Lucifer, right? Like there's that aspect to it, too. But Arabic didn't exist yet at the time when Apocalypse would have been born. So this is just an endless problem with characters who are super old. Celine runs into this sometimes, too. We were like, that isn't quite right. But the nice thing about the Marvel Universe is that there's, like, Celestials running around and time travelers and all this shit that, like, can fix all of those problems. My read on it is that Apocalypse... I mean, the word apocalypsos in ancient Greek, it means revelation. The goddess Calypso in the Odyssey is the veil. She's hiding things and apocalypsis is taking the veil off. It doesn't actually mean the end of the world. It took on that meaning in the medieval period because the most famous apocalypse is the book of Revelation, the apocalypse of John. So I think that once he found a brand that he liked, which was I am the revelator, he stuck with it. And A... It's an A in ancient Greek. It's an A in lots of different languages. So I think that he stuck with that. There's also an appealing alpha and omega quality sure. to it. Sure. I also think it's worth pointing out that he was created in 1987. Well, there's that too. Which is before the internet. Yes. And when research was 
hard instead yes. of easy. And it's, it's it's so it's so funny. Like I have a I have two kids. They're eighteen and fifteen, and it's so funny talking to them about things they don't know about. Mm-hmm. Like I'll say, "Well, have you ever heard of this?" And they're like, "No," but you know. And now they have. Now they do. Right. It it's so it's 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 so fascinating the way that they, uh, the way people now eat new information as opposed to, um, I heard it described uh, like uh, there used to be a guy at every, um, I can't remember who I heard say this, but there used to be a guy at every newspaper who just remembered everything. Mm-hmm. Now that's Tom Brevoort at Marvel is my understanding. Right. That used, there used to be a guy who that, that was his actual value was that he knew <laughs> all the trivia and that person doesn't matter anymore. It's like Tom Brevoort, if that was his only trick. No, he has a lot of other important qualities, but he knows things that nobody else knows, you know? Not anymore. That's my whole point. <laughs> like it used, to be, it used to be amazing how much trivia Tom knew, but now everybody knows the trivia within 30 seconds of being asked the question, right? But he's, I mean, he's a world-class editor. That's Tom's. Right. Like, no, of course. I was, but the thing that's interesting too, though, is like, I believe, and maybe this is self-aggrandizing because I'm the one with a podcast where I reread old issues and stuff, but there is a phenomenon that I call wiki drift that Kieran and I were talking about when Kieran was on because like Exodus, for example, being empowered by the belief of others is something that is not true in the original stories. It's an interpretation people made of the character that then got put on wikis and then became canon because writers referenced the wikis. So you have that... Too, it's like we're a little bit post-truth in lots of ways, right? On the internet, all of the ways. <laughs> all of- Daniel Mizell writes, "Dear Connor and the Man, the Myth, the Legend, Jonathan Hickman. At what point in the development of House of X and Powers of Ten did you realize Apocalypse was going to play the role he did on Krakoa? Were there any stories that were really hard to square away with your version of Apocalypse? Was the story of Okara and Amanth there from the beginning, or did you come up with it later on? Did you always think he would be one of the greatest advocates of Krakoa?" I realize those are a lot of questions. Sorry, not sorry. But your revitalization of the X-Men is what got me into comics in addition to this podcast, Connor. So I'm a bit excited. Thank you both so much. Long live Krakoa, Daniel Maisel. I think the answer to that is yes to all of those questions. I'm pretty sure that all of the apocalypse stuff was there the whole time. Obviously, it evolved and changed as Teeny came in and started writing her book, and, mm-hmm. and we added more layers to it and all of that. And then we, when we decided to redo all of Otherworld, we knew that like one of the slices would be this bullshit place that got eaten by by you know part of part of um, uh, you know the Split Island coming back, and yeah. so like there was a whole bunch of like cool R.I.P. to the fish people of Dryador. They fought valiantly. Well, you know what? I didn't feel bad about it until <laughs> Peppy drew them and they look so And awful. they're so cute and cool, I know. But I think pretty much all of it was there. I would say Apocalypse, Magneto, Emma the White Queen, and Cyclops, Warlock and Doug Ramsey, and Sunspot and Cannonball. I knew everything that was going to happen with pretty much all of them 
the whole way through. Doug and Warlock are the other thing I'm dying to ask you about, but I'm sure that's all ongoing story stuff that we can't talk about until years from now. But I'm excited to have that conversation one day, perhaps. My question actually about Amanth is, in your conception of it, is it like a hell dimension like Limbo, or is it an Earth that was overrun by, like an alternate Earth that was overrun by demons? I don't think it's an alternate Earth. I think it's just an other place, you know? Not limbo in that it is an allegory for hell, but... But you called them demons very specifically. But a place that turned into that. Not one... It wasn't conceived as that. They're not native to... Right, yeah, yeah. Right, okay, gotcha. There was just... I remember there was a lot of debate about, like, is this, like, Earth 4789 or whatever, or is it a magical plane or something like that, otherworld-wise? Phil Aitken writes, hello, Connor, and the esteemed Mr. Hickman, longtime listener, sometime question asker. For Mr. Hickman, how did you and Teeny Howard approach the balance of making Apocalypse a bit more complicated than cartoonishly evil supervillain without erasing that his villainy is rooted in very real evils like eugenics? Did his immortality play a part in that approach? Till we find out exactly how to pronounce his Krakoan name, make mine cerebro, Phil, Flatscan Phil, on the Discord. Flatscans is what I affectionately call the straight man listeners. Oh, okay. <laughs> of course, of course you do. Uh, uh, it's all see. in good fun. It's with love. I love my flat scans. Um, I think when you start talking about people who are extremely long lived, they immediately become alien to us. Right. Like immediately they should, their, their motivations and their thinking and their way that they feel about society in general. Like when you've seen republics fall multiple times sometimes it's your fault sometimes it's not yes i did it come come yeah. In. <laughs> yeah. your, your idea your idea of what society means is radically different than people who are living in the now right and so yes i think that i think that it is the complication of the immortality of the character that leads him to have a inhumane or inhuman ideology that is repellent to me and you, the reader. I think he makes perfectly good sense. I think it's like Dr. Doom. Dr. Doom makes perfectly good sense to himself. Sure. You know, he's absolutely hero of his story every time he's in it. Which makes for the most compelling villains most of the time. The most popular episode of this podcast is the episode on Celine, who's a character I love, but who I argue in the episode has almost never been in a good story. The reason why I love her is because of that specific thing where it's like, well, yeah, it is evil to eat people for sustenance, but like to her, you are poultry. In her mind, you're like an ant. So it's frankly, when she looks at Monet and is like, wow, I like the cut of this one's jib. That's a real statement because uh, really all these people are mosquitoes. So she's picked a mosquito she really likes. And I think, when was the last time I ever did that? And I like approaching characters who think in that way that's so abstract. I think it's really interesting. And Apocalypse trying to explain that in Excalibur to Betsy, to Richter, to other characters is one of the things that was really interesting about him in this era, trying to bridge the gap of understanding. 
Barrett Smith writes, hello, House of Connor and powers of esteemed guest Jonathan Hickman. I could start off with a big preamble about how much I adore Hickman's work on Fantastic Four and Avengers, how Secret Wars is one of my all-time favorite comics, how his Doctor Doom is my favorite take on my number one villain in all of fiction, but alas, this is not a Fantastic Four podcast. In terms of Apocalypse, he's been one of my favorite Marvel villains since I saw the 90s cartoon as a kid. I am the rocks of the eternal shore, crash against me and be broken is a line that's lived rent-free in my head for years now. So when I dove into the Krakoan era, I was blown away by what Jonathan and Teeny did with the character. He went from a super cool villain to a truly fascinating character with a surprising amount of nuance. My question is what Cyclops thought of A during his time on Krakoa. Scott was the POV character in some ways for Hickman's flagship title, written to perfection in my opinion. But despite the prominence of both him and Apocalypse during the Dawn of X, they never really interacted despite their long, ugly history. We know Scott was no fan of the Crucible, and forcing someone to send their baby to the future isn't exactly an easy thing to get over. Was there a lingering grudge, or was Scott feeling forgiving after boning Logan mellowed him out? Sincerely, Barrett, pictures of Spider-Man on the Discord. Uh, I think he hates Apocalypse. I think so too, yeah. (laughs) That's one of the reasons why I didn't get into it, because it pulled against the cohesive narrative later on. You know, if I would have continued to write those two characters, I I'd had no plans to. But if if I would have had a moment later on, I definitely think that would have cropped up because I think he hates his guts. Yeah. I think he looks at Cable and it breaks his heart and he hates him. So. One of the things I find most compelling about Krakoa is the fact that it forces these characters to share space. If they believe in the project, if they want to make this work, they have to, Warren has to sit next to Apocalypse, you know? Yeah. And I would argue that Warren is a little bit, would handle a little bit better than Scott. Oh yeah, I agree. It's what happened to him. And you could argue that Warren sucked until Apocalypse. I don't believe I'm wearing my candy Southern t-shirt right now. So no, I am not of that opinion, but I think the only problem that I have with angel becoming archangel was that his eyebrows stayed blonde. That's it. See, I like that. Cause it looks a little weird. I think the whole blue and pink color scheme that Walt did is so cool. Everything looks so cool. I think he's just great. Yeah. 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 All right, I'm sorry. I like that we're now in a place where you can flip. I think that's the best of both worlds, right? Is like making it a mode like Ileana where you can do both if you want to. Stephen Adewell writes, Hello, Connor and Mr. Hickman. I'm one of those fans who found the Apocalypse retcon coming out of Hoxpox and the Dawn of X absolutely transformative. The connections to Krakoa, Arako, Amanth, the revelation about his family as a main motivation, the way that recast his whole social Darwinism project in a new light. But it wasn't until the economic forum at Davos where he casually reveals he was the cause of the Bronze Age collapse, presumably as a leader of the Sea Peoples, that I completely fell in love with the new A. It was the way this factoid moved him away from some of the celestial tech goofiness of previous stories and toward being more of a historical force in the world that captured my imagination. My question is, given A's mission of testing humanity to see if it could survive a future MNT incursion, what other societal collapses was he responsible for? Who did he back in the year of five emperors? What did he get up to in the warring states period? Was A working the catapults at the siege of Kaffa in 1346? Much love to both of you for all the wonderful work you do, Stephen Adewell. What do you think about his shaping of world events? Did he stop with the ancient worlds? Or, you know, there's a lot of unaccounted for time. I think that somebody should do this book. Great answer. I didn't want to be hyper, hyper, hyper specific, you know, but I think in general, 
like my feelings about uh, House of X and everything that we've done and all that kind of stuff are, it's my job and and I try to do my job as, you know, as well as I can and all of that. Uh, I don't tell people the directions of where their books should go. Now, when it comes to conceiving of books, like, hey, we should do this book, we should do that book. I think a history, a people's history by apocalypse is a fantastic idea for a book. And somebody like Kieran should do it. I remember Kieran emailing me when that Davos issue came out because he had just written something about the Bronze Age (laughs) in some other book that he was doing. I think somebody like him would do a fantastic job on that. Absolutely. My favorite thing about that Davos issue is that it came out when Davos was going on. That was so cool. Talk about synergy. Well, I timed it out. I don't think that book had quite... This is how you know that I don't write my (laughs) bullshit into the book is that there wasn't anywhere near enough disdain and contempt in that book for for it to... For the uh, World Economic Forum at Davos. (laughs) For me to, uh, for, for it to actually be a reflection of how I feel about it, so. There you go. No, I agree, and model, if you're listening, someday, I dream of writing the, the Selene and Apocalypse in the ancient world with silly hats on, Infinity Comic. Cesar Castagna writes, hello, Connor and Jonathan Hickman. Connor, first of all, congrats on the fourth season of Cerebro. I believe your podcast is a magnificent phenomenon of art criticism, comics journalism, and fan culture. Well, thank you. That's very sweet. My question for Mr. Hickman. It's fundamental for the Krakoan era that we have former villains working mostly alongside the heroes to make the utopia achievable. The turning point for Apocalypse is mostly written by Teenie Howard in her very impressive Excalibur run. But when we read Hoxpox, we can observe two things. One, that he's the biggest one to turn. He's the one the reader might think unreachable, but who still makes himself available from the get-go to make this dream of mutant sovereignty come true. And two, and this one really gets me, We spend a lot of time reading about an age of apocalypse that came to be in Moira's ninth life. And though this age of apocalypse is overtaken by his particular brand of violence, mutants are still being persecuted and on the verge of extinction. It makes his side of that horrible war more compelling, and also makes for an interesting twist regarding the original age of apocalypse, in which he was a mutant power dominating humans. How did you conceive that turn of character? Well, I think with the Moira stuff, the point of the exercise is that she's seen nothing work, right? Even tried marrying Apocalypse. Like, that's yeah, how far she went with it. Yeah, and so it was one of those things where it was like, I just went through and mined all of the X-Men continuity for what would be really, really cool alternate failed futures. And I think we landed on a lot of cool ones. That's it. Jordan Broadway writes, Hello, Connor and Jonathan. I swear this email is about Apocalypse, but it might take me a minute to get to him. While I grew up with a good amount of Claremont trades and single issues, I didn't go back and read the full Claremont run from beginning to end until somewhat recently, when House of X and Powers of Ten reinvigorated my love of these characters. So thank you for that. Jonathan, I was aware going in that Apocalypse wasn't really a Claremont character, being a Simonson creation, but I was surprised to learn that Celine, a character I really only knew from the Necrotius story, basically was Claremont's Apocalypse. Not only did she predate him in both age and publication history, but she was a major recurring villain for most of the 80s, making big splashes in Uncanny and New Mutants while Big Blue was largely confined to the pages of X-Factor as the Mystery Man in the Shadows. Obviously, something shifted as, as Slee's appearances in the Marvel Universe began to dwindle. Not only did Nsaba Nur get the ancient immortal mutant backstory, but more and more big X-Men stories began revolving around some variation of him. Do you think there was an intentional push to replace Selene with Apocalypse? And intentional or not, why do you think he's risen so far past her to become one of the most recognizable characters in the franchise? Is it because stories like Fall of the Mutants and Age of Apocalypse left a bigger impact than Nova Roma and Kulan Gav? 
is because his ideological motivations make him a more compelling foil than Celine's admittedly vibes-based mischief? Or am I overthinking it all, and Apocalypse just got wider exposure from the 90s onward because none of the cartoons wanted to depict our heroes punching a slutty vampiress? Thank you both for an incredible history of some of my favorite comics and podcasting, Jordan Broadway. I think you nailed pretty much every aspect here. Celine is a Chris Claremont fantasia. She is H. Ryder Haggard, she plus a dominatrix, divided by Vampiros Lesbos. It's everything that he loves. And I think that Apocalypse, as an alien being who had this really dramatic, strange celestial design and all of that, was just a more immediately captivating idea to other writers. And going into the 90s, his like weird cyborg vibe and the idea that he corrupts these characters in a way that gives them cool new designs like Warren got and Caliban got was very appealing for the toyetic vibe of the nineties where it was like, how many action figures will this create? I think that all of that is true, but I think it's so the cool and gas stuff is probably one of the most, Hey, can we do this cool shit again? (laughs) Pitches that you hear in Marvel retreats year after year after year after year, okay? So I would argue that until Age of Apocalypse, you're actually wrong in terms of which one is more important. It's just that Age of Apocalypse was so, so... I, I, I can't even... If you weren't reading comics when that came out, it's tough to describe how hard that hit. It was almost like, like when Image Comics came out and Jim and when all the talent left Marvel, that sounds ugly. I don't mean it that way, but- The hottest rising stars that everyone was talking about all left en masse. It did happen. These guys took 3 million in sales out the door with them every month. That's how big they were. It's tough to explain how much cooler Image Comics were. They were way cooler than DC Comics at the time, but they were so much cooler than than Marvel Comics also at the time. It's tough to explain how Age of Apocalypse felt like a righting of the wrongs of independent comics in (laughs) in the world of corporate comics that you live in. It brought everybody back in. That's what it hit like. It hit like oh, you've forgotten who's the big dog on the neighbor, you know, on the street kind of thing. And it hit so hard. It isn't even that it hit so hard. It's that it hit so hard and the books were cool and the books were interesting and fascinating and a couple of them were fucking great. And Apocalypse just became important. He was not important before then. Like he was a cool character and all of that, but he was also dead and gone. Yeah. He was not important. And then when that happened, he became super important. I love that Fabian Nicieza stuff in the early 90s. Even there, Strife and Sinister are the big villains. Apocalypse is just kind of set dressing for the plot. Yeah, I mean, when Apocalypse, those X-Factor issues that I talked about that Wilsh drew, Basically, Apocalypse gets worked by Strife and Mr. Sinister. Yeah. Like it's a it's a big trick. And so any anyway, that's the answer to the question. The answer to the question is Age of Apocalypse was that big. People still pitch, let's do an Age of Apocalypse of. Yeah. Like people Well, look, Sins of Sinister was definitely in that mold. It did something different with it, but Yeah, sometimes they call it Sins of Sinister when they pitch Age of Apocalypse. <laughs> it is exactly 
but that's the that's that that's the shorthand for it. We'll age of apocalypse it. You know, let's do an age of apocalypse, but it's like this. And like, that's how log lines work a lot is X meets Y, right? right? Let's do age of apocalypse, but it's also Warhammer 40k. And guess what? That pitch, it was fucking cool. So they did it. Yep. Maxwell Warner writes, Dear Connor and head of Ex Emeritus, Jonathan, Mr. Hickman, I just like to say I've been a big fan of yours since I picked up a newly released issue of S.H.I.E.L.D. and was astonished to discover the villain was Sir Isaac Newton. <laughs> that series also featured your first time writing Apocalypse, albeit in a cameo. Your use of Apocalypse in House of X was the character's first major storyline in over a decade. Although absent entirely for 12 of those years, Apocalypse's legacy was built up in books like Uncanny X-Wars. Almost all of those stories focused on the idea of Apocalypse as a servant of the Celestials, even situating Apocalypse as a position or title that Ensabiner was only the most recent to hold. However, your work on the character has focused entirely on Apocalypse's position as an ancient mutant patriarch, eschewing the celestial elements entirely in favor of the fascinating saga of Okara, Arako, and Krakoa. What was the thinking behind the decision to pivot away from the celestial angle that had previously dominated the character's history? The only reference to those elements I can recall was when Cardinal consumed an Apocalypse seed in Powers of Ten. Sincerely, Maxwell Warner, they, them, head on the Discord. P.S. I gotta ask about Silabel, if Connor hasn't already. I do love Silabel. She was so cool, but what does Silabel mean? Just sounds cool. It just sounds really fucking cool, right? It sounds awesome. I want her back. Everyone's like, where's Rasputin 4? I'm like, where's Silabel? I want justice for my black brain queen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the celestial stuff. Um, so uh, this, is, this, this is informed entirely on just experience. Marvel doesn't know how to do Jack Kirby stuff. And I, and I mean, I mean, like primordial. Jack like new gods type shit. And I don't think DC Comics does either. I mean, there are obvious exceptions. But I would generally agree that those Kirby things have a unique. I mean, it's why no one until Kieran was able to make Eternals work, in my opinion. Like, not even Neil Gaiman was able to make it work because you have to nail that weird Jack Kirby Chariots of the Gods thing. The problem is, is that we don't operate in a writer-artist environment anymore. Those are bifurcated jobs. And Jack Kirby, at his most Jack Kirby, is synergistic of both of those roles. And it's very difficult for places like Marvel and DC to capture the scale and the power and the energy with the delicate out there ideas that are contained within. It takes a Jack Kirby to do a Jack Kirby comic, right? And Fantastic Four is great. It's great, but it's not a Jack Kirby comic. Are the Jack Kirby issues amazing? Of course they are. Of course they are. But they're not pure, undistilled Jack Kirby comics. I, I, I think we know what those comics are. Yeah, the fourth world to me is really the thing that I always look at. I'm like, that's the thing. Having done a little bit of Celestials, Deviance, Eternals work, I think that you can use it as flavor. I, I don't think it's, it's a meal that you can serve for the most part. Can it be done? Of course it can be done. Is it incredibly difficult to do? Yes. And any chance that I have where I am able to have enough runway and all of that kind of stuff to where when I'm 
presented with the option of including Kirby stuff that is pure Kirby stuff and trying to make it work with X-Men characters or divorcing it a little bit, I think it's better to divorce it. That's just a personal decision. And I look, I would love to do a pure, I would love to write New Gods for DC Comics. I would love to read you write New Gods. I was going to write New Gods for DC Comics. I, I came back to Marvel instead. But it, it is such a delicate thing to do. It shouldn't be seasoning. It needs to be the whole thing. And I don't like it being seasoning on Apocalypse. Like, I, I just don't like it. I don't think it works. But that's just me, you know? Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree. You mentioned that you like the Remender stuff in Uncanny X-Force. Sure. I think Rick did a great job on that book. But, okay, so a tangential thing of this is is Rick and I are about the same age. Rick and I both have kids about the same age. We both were writing about kids at the same time. <laughs> it's a natural thing that you're doing whenever you're a dad at a certain age and you're making comic books that are entertainment, right? Right. But I don't think Apocalypse should be a kid. I think he should be Apocalypse. Evan Sabiner was one of the characters that was taken off the board pretty definitively right before Krakoa started. And it felt to me like it was done specifically to be like, no, 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 we need to emphasize Apocalypse, the OG guy. No, that wasn't a mandate from us or anything like that. Oh, okay. Good to know. That's just stuff that happened. I, I didn't, I, I very purposely told all the X people that were doing X-Men books before I took over. I was like, do whatever you want to do. Do not feel beholden in any way to try and set us up or. That's interesting. Cause it felt like there were certain characters who were sort of duplicates that got taken out perhaps because they might be confusing to new readers. So like Dark Beast goes out. A lot of the alternate universe characters go out. Nate Gray goes out. Evan Sabiner goes out. It did feel sort of methodical. Well, I, Maybe that was editorially rather than you, though. I don't know. No, I don't think it was editorial. It may have been choices that those people made because I had pitched in the room what I was doing at that point. And it may have felt as superfluous or, hey, I can do this and I can do that and all that kind of stuff. But there was no do this, do that. I don't, I don't, I don't like to do that. So the succession of apocalypses that's presented in Remender, to me, that idea is less interesting than apocalypse as a singular individual, especially with an immortal character who has a long continuity like that. I'm less interested in like, who else has the celestial tasked with doing this kind of thing? That's just not. I think Rick absolutely de deserves credit as doing the best X book during that period. And, you know, he was supposed to take over the X-Men, but it fell through. I just bump off his stuff. It's a me thing. Like, I, I understand why people love it. It's just X-Force was never my... His pitch was good. His, his, his X-Pitch, like, I was still in the room for that. His X-Pitch was, was really, really good. Different pads that could have gone. Oh, yeah. sure. I mean, that's, that's the history of corporate comics. Absolutely. You know? there's, a, there's a version of reality where I wrote New Gods and Legion of Superheroes over at DC Comics instead of House of X. Those are the two I want to see you write. So maybe someday. Uh, it's a good pitch. It's a good pitch. <laughs> I bet it is. Jamie Roberts writes, Dear Connor, esteemed guest Jonathan Hickman, I'm from South Carolina and have a South Carolina accent. I'm not going to try to do a South Carolina accent while I'm sitting with Jonathan Hickman who has a South Carolina accent. That would be very embarrassing. But I appreciate you for letting me know. I absolutely love Secret Wars and the long run up to it from Jonathan's run on Fantastic Four through to the end of the event. 
Reed's speech about how everything lives is great. It's interesting how the same sensibility carries through in a more literal sense on Krakoa and with the radical prospect of Krakoan amnesty. Here's my actual question, which is unfortunately not about Apocalypse. We're getting now outside of the Apocalypse-specific okay. questions a little bit. What was Moira doing during Secret Wars 2015? If she died during an incursion event, would Earth-616 have been wiped out, or would resetting the timeline prevent the incursion? Is there a Moira in other universes? Do her timelines reset? Does this timeline resetting have any sort of cosmic significance in the multiverse, in Jonathan's opinion? And also, tangentially, if I'm reading comics through the Marvel Unlimited app, what's the best way for me to support writers and artists? Thanks to both Connor and Jonathan and Jamie Roberts. Uh, if you are a subscriber to the Marvel Unlimited app, Marvel makes a lot of money off of that. They pay that money to writers and artists. You're doing everything you're supposed to do. As far as are there other Moiras and other universes and the multiverse of it all? Of course there are. Of course there are. Jordan Bloom so. already did uh, an Infinity comic. It's like an Age of Apocalypse story, but certain things are different. And then the twist was, of course, that Age of Apocalypse Moira had reset. So, you know, there's definitely potential there. Jordan White suggested on the show is like maybe Moira never had that power before Secret Wars. That's not my reading. I think apart from a couple like, hmm, that doesn't quite jive things that you don't have to worry about. The Moira retcon works really, really well. For me, I would think that like what happened in Secret Wars, the universe wasn't destroyed. It was kind of like paused and jumbled up. So I don't think Moira ever died. No, I would argue that there were no universes. Right. So like there was no way for her to die and reset because she didn't exist. Yeah, there was no container for her existence in any universe ever. Like they were all gone. The reason why Jordan says that is because obviously all of that stuff had to be remade at some point. Of course. But... I think it's pretty clear in the text, but I just, I love to get the firm opinion from the person who wrote it. Moira's previous lives are all Earth-616, right? I'm also aware that it's 616, but I say 616 and have since I was a child, so it's just what I say. They're all 616. The timeline just rewinds. Those aren't like alternate Earths with their own numbers, correct? Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Tyler Sharp writes, Greetings, elegant host Connor and preeminent X-Men architect Jonathan Hickman. Mr. Hickman, I'm a huge fan of how you revolutionized X-Men so dramatically in the best and truest way possible. But one thing that stood out to me is how the relationship between mutant and machine was recontextualized in your Inferno. Karima Shapandar is days of future pasting and tells Eric and Charles she's responding to her own oppression at the hands of humans and mutants. Was it your intent for this to be read as an allegory on intersectionality and lateral violence between marginalized groups? Ruefully yours, Tyler Sharp, Tyler Bollicle on Twitter for who knows how much longer. Because they're quitting Twitter. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, we all are. I make that joke a lot. At the end of the show, I'm like, follow me on Twitter. I'm like, or don't, because God knows okay, how long right, I'm going right. to still be on that. That's a, that's a super ominous ending. Yeah, there. no, no, no. I know. No, I'm, yeah, he's make, he's referencing me. Don't worry. Okay, he's all fine. Right, all right. Uh, I would argue that the broader point that I was making on all of that, as it ties into phalanx stuff and everything, is that there is an inevitable artificial intelligencing of every society where you're human or alien or whatever finite corporeal form doesn't matter much anymore and at some point it all becomes kind of borgified collective death of the individual right is the is the broader argument that i would make uh, so i guess you could extrapolate it out to that kind of argument 
she repeats the lines that Scott says, like, did you think we were sure. just going to take it? And stuff. that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so, and so the reason why she's, let me not answer that because I feel like I'm sure. getting ready to start talking about comics that are may or may not be still being written. Out. I mean, she's in the yeah. she's in the preview for next week's X Men, so the character is yes. still being written. I was excited to see her because I've missed her because that scene in Inferno is one of my favorite things you've ever written. My jaw dropped with the time travel reveal. I was like, "Holy, you are a crazy person!" But I'm on board. <laughs> I am along for the ride. My actual, my question about Inferno while we're there is: there is a sequence at the beginning of Inferno, obviously, where we see Moira's interaction with Destiny in Life Three again, and it's an expanded sequence. There are certain differences between the version in House of X and the version in Inferno. Mm -hmm. There's a whole additional page, obviously, but there's also changes in the object she's holding, changes in dialogue. Are those changes something we're meant to pick apart? Because I did obsessively for like a week on Twitter once. Um, it's supposed to be Rashomon, right? Okay, that's my, yeah, that's my question. So that, that, would, be, that would be my answer. It is very possible because of the way that we have to make comics and the velocity at which these things are happening, that what was in the script that got changed in a lettering stage at some point. Sure. Did not. That you're like, I'll use this script again, but like certain lines had changed a little bit at some point in an editing process or whatever. Here's a thing that I've, I have had happen before. I have a line that is, don't want no ketchup on my fries right mm -hmm. the copy editor makes a note to change it to i don't want any ketchup on my fries right right i'm trying to make it sound a certain way and one time you catch it and the next time you don't catch it and so the language changes mm -hmm. because they're trying to make it sound grammatically correct I've had misses like that where it changes the flashback and, and you do the scene twice in two different issues. Right? right. And so it doesn't link up perfectly. The way I interpreted it was that the version we see in House of X is the version that Moira showed to Charles. Yeah. And that then Inferno is what actually happened. Yeah. Okay, cool. Then two other questions about this scene. One is that in that scene, Destiny, which of course, by the way, Galaxy Brain Moira means destiny. So setting them up as poles was super fun to me to begin with from the jump. But she calls her Dr. McTaggart. And in Life 3, that's not Moira's name. And I was wondering if that's a goof or if it's on purpose. That's a total fuck up. Oh, okay. Well, I like it anyway, because we know that Moira's presence disrupts Destiny's power. So maybe she's seeing Life 10 somehow. Don't even worry. I just, I wanted to ask. And then the other thing is in Life 10 in the present, when Moira's running around doing all her nefarious things, we see that she has a burned journal with her notes from the cure, but that fire happens in Life 3. So people were like, how did that journal that's burned persist? I was like, well, clearly she tried to reproduce it at some point, and that's why Mystique destroyed Muir Island in uh, 2000, and that was burned in that event. Yes, that's right. Okay, thank you. I was like, I'm pretty confident I know exactly why that's burned, but I just wanted to check. And it makes Dream's End make a lot more sense, so I love that for all of us. So thank you for, uh, for squaring the circle there. Moving right along, 
Nikhil Clayton writes, Dear Connor and very, very distinguished guest, I want to let you know, first of all, that I appreciate what you've both done to uplift this community and this franchise. You've done so much to get old and new fans alike into X-Men. Connor, your enjoyment and love for these books is contagious. Your show not only makes understanding the characters and stories easier, but also views them through a critical lens that highlights just how complex and moving this franchise can be. Thank you. This is, I can't read more of like the nice stuff. It's making me blush, especially in front of Jonathan Hickman. I feel insane talking about like how great I am. Uh, you spark so much genuine and thoughtful conversation or living proof that there are really no small characters. Well, that's the goal. So I'm glad to hear that. Mr. Hickman, your contribution to rejuvenating these characters and setting the stage for them to be able to grow and prosper can't be understated. You've helped foster a beautiful age of collaboration and storytelling unlike anything I've ever experienced. Thank you both sincerely from the bottom of my heart. Now, gushing out of the way, let's talk Blue Daddy Apocalypse. In my opinion, the two characters most revolutionized by the Krakoa era were Apocalypse and Moira. As I was reading, I kept getting the impression the two were on similar journeys, each willing to do some pretty amoral things to ensure the world was prepared for an eventual disastrous confrontation. Apocalypse's survival of the fittest mentality was revealed to have been motivated by the need to prepare mutant kind for their eventual reunion with the mutants of Arako. This seemed thematically similar to the revelation that Moira was manipulating events in each of her lives to try and prevent the rise of artificial intelligence. Hell, in her most recent life, the two of them were even married. My question is, what connection did you see, Jonathan, between these characters and their missions? Out of everyone in the X-Men line, what about the two of them made you decide to imbue them with such tragic purpose? Furthermore, what is it about characters like them that you think resonates so well with readers? Can't wait to hear both of your thoughts in this episode and looking forward to your eventual 10-part collaboration, House of Maddie, Powers of Pryor. <laughs> Sincerely, Nikhil Clayton. I am Madeline Pryor's personal defense attorney. It is my calling. Have you had Zeb on yet? I have. We did the Nanny and the Orphan Maker episode and we both got really deep on how much we love Ms. Pryor and seek justice. And I think he's done an incredible job. I'm really thrilled. And my friend Steve Fox is writing the, the Maddie book now and I can't wait to read it. Um, I would say that that's pretty close to right in regards to the characters that, that got the, like the, the heavy bump and, and, and a, a big kind of revision. There is a third and fourth character that I would include in that that you don't know about. <laughs> and that would be that would be my these are the big polls. Well, I think Doug is one of them. I mean, I can't I I you don't have to confirm or deny, but to me that's sort of the third point in that triangle on some. Yeah, level. there's a north-south, there's a north-south-east-west of characters that have shared journeys and ideologies that are transformed by this big story that's going on so you're right and they were all picked for very specific reasons and i think that's kind of all i can say about it fair enough because it kind of turns into a discussion about what's the point and all of that i have another inferno question again this is not about what stories are being written now but just sort of about where your head was at my read on Moira's plan, as it were, was that she was on board with Krakoa. She was trying to actually make it work. But once Nimrod went online, she decided this was a fail state. And her backup plan was the cure because you need the cure to ascend to the phalanx because mutants, as we learned in the 90s, can't be incorporated into the phalanx. Am I on the right track or am I crazy? I really shouldn't answer that question. Fair enough. Either. Moving on. Nick DeCraft writes, hello, Connor and illustrious Jonathan Hickman, exclamation points. I want to start by thanking both of you for your work. Lots of nice things about me, which I appreciate. Anyway, hearing the stunning praise for Hawksbox is what got him buying floppies week to week for the first time since 2015. I was not disappointed. The work coming out of the collaborative environment, the ex office that Jonathan Hickman fostered is breathtaking. And ever since I've started reading, I've been slowly but surely getting everyone I know to read this stuff. 
On to my question. One of my favorite small things that happens early in Jonathan's run is the casual reveal that Logan and Scott have adjoining rooms with Jean in the summer house, which has obvious exciting implications for the three, even if they're not all spelled out on the page. It didn't just stop at data pages. Logan's at family dinners, lounging with Scott on the moon, jumps on a vacation opportunity to see Scott in a Speedo. As a queer man in a polyamorous relationship myself, it delighted me to see that dynamic maybe playing out in a story like this with such hugely important characters. My question is, how did you come to the decision to include Logan in the House of Summers in that way? Was it an idea you felt strongly about early on or an idea that was built up through collective conversations with other creatives? In your mind, is the relationship between Scott, Jean, and Logan on Krakoa a demonstration of Krakoa's promise for new beginnings? Or is it more signifying how far the three of them have come as characters together? Feel free to be as vague or as open as necessary so as not to upset anyone who owns these characters. Regardless, thank you both again for all the passion you pour into your work. I can't wait to listen to whatever comes of your amazing conversation together. Until then, make mine cerebro. Has Teeny ever told you the story behind why I did that stuff? Offline, but I would like you to tell the listeners. Okay, yes. Yeah, so I don't tell tales at no, no, school, you know? I'm just, yeah, curious yeah. If you, I'm just curious if you already knew the answer. So I hate the way that new writers come on to an X book and then they feel like they have to make the audience happy by giving them what they want. And that takes a lot of different forms. And I discern this is one of the big problems with the franchise for creators. When they come in and they write the books and they're working on them, they feel beholden to a very loud section of the audience. And again, there's a thousand different loud sections of the X-Men audience which is why you get pulled in all these different directions and you suddenly become, Oh, well you, you're a, you're a Emma Scott stand right. instead of a Gene Scott stand and all this kind of stuff. Right. And it drives me crazy because I've watched writers come onto the books and try and make readers happy by doing this stuff. And it never works. Whenever you're making somebody happy, you're making somebody else mad. And there were multiple different versions of that, that uh, I feel like, the writers feel beholden to do. One of them is, hey, I'm going to make this character super special. So I'm going to boost their powers up really, really large. And I'm going to make them an, an Omega level chef or some kind of bullshit like that. Right? <laughs> and so I immediately was like, I'm stopping all of that. Their powers are their powers. And here's a list of the Omega level mutants. You may love the list. You may hate the list. You may think the list is insane. You may think it makes perfect sense, but it's the list. Okay. I was so relieved you did that. I got, even though there were some, I was, I was like, why isn't Lorna here? Why isn't Rachel here? But you know what? I got over it. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly right. <laughs> Somebody is going to get upset at the list, but what the list did was it told you what the list was. And then the other thing that people do, and this is a bigger problem is like fans shipping people in relationships, right? Which I guess is what the word shipping is for relationships, right? Well, it comes from uh, from Mulder and Scully. Okay, all right. So anyway, <laughs> and so I told Marvel, I was like, I'm not having a bunch of writers have to deal with this shit anymore because the point of the exercise is to clean all this up and for us to have a ton of energy moving forward. So here's the choice that you get to make. You either make the choice of I'm making a list, like the Omega level list of who is in a relationship with who, and it's canon. No <laughs> writers can come in and change it, and that is who is dating who, and it's across the board. Or 
everybody's fucking everybody. And you get one of the two choices. So which is it going to be? And the Marvel people said, everybody's fucking everybody. And they thought I was kidding, right? You were not kidding. Yeah, no, you made it clear very early that you were not kidding. And I was not kidding. I was like, all right, so then everybody's fucking everybody, right? And I didn't mean it like in a crass way or anything like that, but I meant like at any point in time, this is a total soap opera and anybody can break up with somebody and be in a That's the Claremont way. If you go back to the classic X-Men stuff, in the classic X-Men stuff, you know, even if he can't say it, particularly with the same sex couples that he was implying all the time, who is Storm fucking in Chris Claremont X-Men comics? Everybody who Chris Claremont thinks she should be fucking, which is like 10 different characters. And it's not always on the page, but it's there. I thought that was the correct decision. And I thought it was more in the spirit of it Mm -hmm. all. But I felt like in the effort to show the other writers that, um, uh, and there's a third one of these that I'll get back to uh, after this, but, and in the spirit of, of showing the other writers what you can and cannot do, I was like, what is the most contentious set of relationships in X-Men? It's Gene Scott, Scott Gene. I mean, Scott, Gene, Gene, Scott, Emma, and Logan. It's that square. And then, and, then, and then Scott, Gene, Gene, Logan. And I was like, okay, so let's put it together in a fun way. They're all living together, except for Emma, who would never. Who would never in a million years, and also would never touch Logan. So it can't be a full square. She finds Logan disgusting because he's. <laughs> He's crass. She likes him as fine as a person, but she's not going to have sex with him. It's not going to happen. That's exactly right. And so, and so that was what that was. It was an example of there are no rules in regards to that. It wasn't any massive declaration of this continuity was more important than this other continuity or that it was just, hey, you can get away with whatever you want to in terms of relationship wise. Did some people push it too far? I don't know. Maybe. I don't think so. I think everybody pushed it just far enough. And I think that it was you using your clout as Jonathan Hickman to say, I don't care. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want that made people feel more emboldened. Right. The thing that I wanted to do away with was the constant conversation about why a book is bad because two characters weren't together. Mm -hmm. And it actually successfully did that. Like, I don't know whether you noticed or not, but that kind of disappeared. It feels so dated now when people do it. Like when people are arguing about Scott Jean and Scott Emma, I'm just like, what are we, were we just teleported to 2005? Like what's going on here? And it's not effective anymore. And all that's kind of the other thing that I tried to push that didn't happen was they all changed costumes every issue. Yeah. The mutant clothes thing. Yeah. Like, like, and, and it's like the artists didn't get on board with it or they, or the artists didn't feel like they could do it you know like it was it was just it, it kind of bummed me out because i thought it was going to be one of the coolest things ever is when i mean i gave magneto three outfits that was the best i mean i think it worked and didn't work i think that part of what made that tricky it's sort of like when you did everybody has a mutant name at the beginning too it's just weird to call Jean Grey Marvel Girl when she's 40. I mean, I realize that in the sliding time scale, she's not 40, but she's 40 if we're keeping it 100. And it just, it, it's things like that where it's like, no, you know, Kitty Pride, unless you're going to call her Shadow Cat, everyone's just going to call her Kitty Pride, you know? Yeah, the problem with rules is that there's always something that breaks the rule. Exceptions. And that one definitely was a what didn't work. 
but it was one of those things where it kind of got the point across. There, yes. Right. And I think similarly, the clothes thing, part of that is that those costumes are so associated with specific temporal eras of the X-Men that I think people feel like when you put a 90s costume on, you're making a statement about your book. Right. So I think that for people, it was just jarring to be like Storms in her punk outfit and next issue Storms in the Jim Lee cat suit yeah. with the X's on her titties and all of that. Like, you know, I think that it was a cool idea that some i think readers had trouble following the visual language a little bit if we would have done it cohesively and consistently across the board it would have worked very 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 well but, it but i think work. everyone had to be doing it every issue if you wanted to do that it just didn't work it didn't work um and a part of that is because that's a failure of the writers because we weren't visually putting in the script this is the outfit. this is the costume yeah and I probably could have pushed that harder, but obviously we were just so busy and everything was going on. A lot out. going on. A lot of spinning plates at once, for sure. Anyway, that's the that's that's where all of that came from. And uh, good idea or bad idea, I think, it, I think it was an interesting It was experiment. a fun experiment at the very least. Ben Mauger writes, Hello, Connor. As a flat scan, this podcast has been a great perspective for me on how other people view X-Men with lenses that aren't my generic white guy lens. <laughs> I've gained a particular appreciation for certain characters like Sage, Forge, and Jubilee that I didn't really think about before. Anyway, my question for Jonathan Hickman. Jonathan, was Cyclops as a family man supposed to mirror Apocalypse with his family? We see the Summers family having dinners on the moon or taking vacations while Apocalypse is welcomed by his kids with a couple of knives in the back. Apocalypse leaves for Ammon surrounded by his family while now the Summer's family is no longer as together as they were at the beginning of the era. I found it interesting that Cyclops finally got to be a dad to both of his time-displaced kids at the same time that Apocalypse was finally able to reconnect after a fashion with his. Dad Clops and Wife Guy Apocalypse were absolute highlights of your time on the X-Men for me. Thank you for your time, Ben. I was super important to as often as possible that we presented these guys as getting to have normal relationships, not in wartime. Yeah. And so I, every chance I got, like, even when you look at the New Mutants book, that's a family. It's a bunch of friends on vacation, that first arc. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I think that the same thing was, we tried to do the same thing with, with the House of M family. And I'm a big Lorna head. That's one where I wish that there had been a little more of the two of them. But it's tricky with Magneto because of like who are his kids at any given moment is always when the House of M is just those two people who don't know each other very well. It's a little bit. Well, it's, just not, it's not it's not clean because of the, the Quicksilver yeah. Scarlet Witch. And Zaladane. No, I'm just kidding. Zaladane's the mascot of this podcast, though. So I had to mention her. My favorite three issue runs of X-Men. It's you know? so good. It's so good. And I have thoughts. Marvel, if you're listening, call me. But no, it's, it's because of the Scarlet Witch Quicksilver thing that that becomes hard. And I think that we're now at a place where like, if they can't, if you can't just undo, like spin that back to 1989 or whatever, then I think we're in a good place now where those characters all do feel interconnected in a way that works. It's tough to explain to people who are relatively new to comics just how much Marvel as an institution has changed in regards to rules around what characters you can and can't use in what ways because of corporate affiliations and rights and movies and all that kind of stuff. Like it's changed so much in the, you know, 15 years that I've been around the company. So this is IP stuff that's complicated. Yeah. Jake Engdahl writes, Dear Connor to see Mr. Hickman, it's great to be writing to you both as Mr. Hickman got me back into the X-Men and Cerebros helped me maintain and deepen the obsession. So this crossover is super exciting. 
I have two questions, one about Apocalypse in specific, but one about Hickman's work on X-Men in general. The general question first, I was wondering if Mr. Hickman would like to speak about some of the influences that went into Hawks Pucks and the Krakoan Age generally. There's a long history of X-Men writers putting a lot of their favorite media influences into their work, as we've seen Chris Claremont do a lot from Vertigo with Maddie Pryor to mid-century pulp fiction with characters like Zaladane or Celine. Side note, the discussion on Vertigo in the Maddie Pryor episode last month got me super excited to watch that movie for the first time. Oh, that I love to hear. I'm glad that you're doing that. With Hawksbox and Krakoa, I've picked up on a lot of Dune influence with the bigger sci-fi concepts, plus explicit stuff like references to No Places and Arako sounding a lot like Arrakis. Are there any other big influences Jonathan would like to speak about or recommend? And as for Insabiner himself, I've always been interested in the sort of role he plays in the broader politics of mutantum as compared to Magneto, Charles, Emma, and Callisto, the compass that Connor has discussed many times on this show before. Is Apocalypse just something of a force of nature underpinning the broader politics of the series? What role does he play in deepening the political dynamics of Krakoa and mutants in general? Until Zaladin achieves a Zaladin of Zaladins, make mine Cerebro, Jake Engdahl, MadMag94 in the Discord, and Cinemar on Twitter. A Zaladin in the parlance of this podcast is 12 issues because she only has 12 appearances, so it's a unit of measurement. I think we've... <laughs> He's laughing. Basically, I was explaining the Lorna Dane Zaladane thing in an early episode of the podcast, and people were so fascinated by how insane Chris Claremont galaxy brain that is that she just kept coming up. I think we answered the apocalypse question. It is the force of nature thing a little bit. It's like, it's asking the limits of how deeply these political divides can go. Like, can we bring all these people together? And he's the ultimate ancient thing that they're all kind of dancing around when they're debating these issues, right? But as for like influences on your work in building Krakoa and all of that, that's an interesting question. I mean, the Dune stuff, I also have kind of caught. I think my sci-fi fantasy tropey stuff is pretty evident uh, whenever I, I lean into that stuff. I think, I think though with here at this X-Men gig, more than anything, it mines X-Men continuity. Like the most influential part of this stuff is other X-Men books, looking at it kind of to the left or right and out of the corner of your eye and thinking about it in a different way. Normally you don't get that kind of rope on any job at Marvel, but again, because of the Fox deal and because like the, I call it the lost decade because people had their legs cut out from under them. It's not insulting the creators. It's saying that they were writing under such tough circumstances, you know? Uh, Brian Michael Bendis is the most important writer at Marvel of the past 20 years. And he was not allowed to do a bunch of stuff and it was limited by what he could do in the X-Men books because they weren't a priority for Marvel, the company, because we didn't have the rights to it. And I mean, I watched that happen. I watched it, him be frustrated by it. Yeah, you so, were there. <laughs> yeah. I remember the day he quit the X-Men books and I was like, damn, it was such a seismic change that the job basically was revisiting all the X-Men stuff and pushing it in a new direction. So I, I think that's probably the fairest answer. Rob Secundus writes, Dear Connor and most highly esteemed guest, head of guest, 
Congratulations, Connor, on 101 exciting episodes. And please thank Mr. Hickman for one of the most joyous reading experiences of my life. I'll never forget what it felt like to get a new issue of Hoxbox, pour over it, and then dive into research, conversation, and speculation every week. I've never had a reading experience truly like it, even if too many hours of my life were lost to researching the meaning of a galm. <laughs> for the listeners, that's a bit of a throwback to a typo in the Krakoan script. Hoxbox stands in my estimation as an illustration of one immense power of these gigantic, unwieldy superhero shared universes. A paradigm shift feels so much more powerful when it occurs in a story with a thousand issues before it and a dozen other contiguous stories alongside it than it would in isolation. A bunch of superheroes form their own separate stateless island nation where they solve death would be an interesting story. A bunch of superheroes who are clearly standing in for or commenting on characters you know would be a bit more interesting. But this paradigm shift occurs with the actual X-Men is by far the most compelling possible version of such a story. My question is, why do you think this kind of shift is so rare outside of superhero stories? I can only think of Angel Season 5, and even that has superhero DNA. Maybe Dark Shadows? Do you think wild stories like The X-Men Solve Death, The Avengers Blow Up Universes Now, Spider-Man is Dr. Octopus Now, The Hulk is the Literal Devil Now, etc., etc., are doomed as with each passing year corporate comics become more bound to their cousins' cinematic universes? Thank you both again for your work. Best, Rob Secundus. P.S. I can't wait to find out in the long tradition of incredible Marvel acronyms what exactly GODS stands for. I'm intrigued by that, too. I'm sure there's a funny answer. There's a good answer, yeah. <laughs> so I think the answer to that question is I can understand why you would draw the conclusion that as everything becomes kind of more homogenous and everything is a mashup of a mashup of a mashup. There's only so many times that you can do crisis on infinite earths and it matters. Right. Right. I think that's a true statement. Okay. And I think that you only get to mine 40 years of continuity and radically shift it to the left or right once. I think that's, that's a true statement. If you think about entertainment as a, marvel comic book universe kind of thing right i think that's true right i think there's probably going to be less and less chances of it although i would argue that there's still a whole lot more uh, a whole lot left to play with in the in the marvel and dc universe yeah i think there's a whole lot more there way more meat on the bone there's just people who are good at doing that kind of thing it is a skill that less and less people have because most people aren't writing 30 issues of the book anymore the runway is so key. The fact that you right. had that space is really important. Well, you have to make that. You have to be successful. You just, it's just so, it's, it's, it's way more difficult. I, I agree with that. What I would disagree about that statement with is that that stuff is going to go away because there's only so much shared continuity that you have access to. I think copyright stuff is getting ready to change here in the next 20 years. I think that I think that what you're going to be able to have access to through licensing is going to change. And I think that the ability to rewrite and retell continuity as we understand it, as we used to understand it, as it was called history, is going to change radically here in the next 20 years this idea of everybody's lying to you right mm -hmm. when people talk about politics or whatever around me and i come across as a monster on my takes 
either in how overly calculated I'm talking about that stuff or how cynical my uh, uh, approach to it is. The phrase that I am using over and over again nowadays is everybody's lying and nothing works, right? That's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of what society feels like right now. That really sucks. But there's also a version of that that comes out of that, that if everybody is lying and everybody knows and accepts that everybody's lying, then what you're living in is nothing but pure fiction space. (laughs) If you can withstand the shock to the system that that is, the opportunity to tell stories that are hard revisions of history that you thought you believed, as terrifying as that is, also has the potential to be extremely exciting and re- there's an opportunity to rediscover humanity in the retelling of a fake history that you thought was a real history. We have to build something because if we're post-truth, like there still has to be a way through, right? Like we can't just live in a fog. We have to find narratives that make sense to us. And part of that is the shaping. Well, I think the argument there is that the human experience is the human experience. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's an argument that... what about AI and what that means. But I think we can agree that regardless of what you want to call our expertise in a whole bunch of areas, we actually have done a pretty good job of paying attention to what human beings think and feel over the past 6,000 years. We have a pretty good history of what it means to be human and what human behavior is and what good behavior is and what what health I'm sorry what healthy human behavior is and what unhealthy human behavior is and what is what makes us love other people and what makes us hate other people like we have a pretty good idea of understanding that stuff and if your shared human experience is real and we know what that is the story around it kind of isn't important if you if the if the mortar of society is based around you know being human and i think we've gotten away from that and i i think that i think that that's that's the glue going forward in a post-truth society but you know i could be wrong I like to think you're right. I mean, this is, I'm also more of an optimist about the human condition at the end of the day. So I I think, you know, but I'm also cynical. Like I get what you're saying, you know, which is like, I think people persevere. I think that we're in a shitty time in some ways. I think we have abdicated our responsibility of being good human beings to people who talk about what it means to be good and they're lying to you. I think it's on you to be good and if you do that, the world will be good. And, and, and we've somehow stopped believing that because the head on the television tells us what's good and what's bad, even when we know that's not true, you know? But, you know, that's how I feel about it. Well said. Eric Tarnowski writes, you're Connor and Jonathan. First of all, Connor, late congrats on passing 100 episodes. I've thoroughly enjoyed every second of the ride, and here's to 100 more. I have a question for Jonathan about the Iraqi mutants. Araco is one of my favorite developments of the Krakoan era, and I've been fascinated since its proper debut in Ten of Swords. What was the inspiration for the sword bearers of Araco and the other Iraqi mutants? Many of them have powers that seem a bit more out there than your garden variety superpowers. Was there a guiding principle to make them that way? Did you and the team start with Apocalypse's weird shape-changing powers and work backward? Was it simply a story conceit? It was the pair of you that brought me back into the wonderful world of comics. So thank you both so, so, so much. Eric E. Tarnowski, the uncaring on the Discord. 
Uh, the argument there was that society that was in nothing but war ever, instead of periods of contraction and expansion in normal human earth history, would produce power sets that were different than what our society produced. It's a apocalypse argument. It's a very Darwinist argument for why why they would present as differently. It's also like, you know, we look at our mutants on our Earth on Earth 616 as they've developed. And you have characters like Selene and Apocalypse who are very old, and you have intermittently different characters like Amanda Mueller, whoever who happened in the intervening years. But the nuclear age really like pushed it forward. They're the children of the atom, right? Like it was expressing more or whatever. The Iraqi mutants are a society of thousands of mutants who were together intermarrying for thousands of years longer than the big population boom that we only got on Earth in the 20th century was my thing. So like, to me, and I think that Sins of Sinister underlined this a little bit, it's like if you go a couple thousand years in the future of Earth, you'll probably see a lot more mutants who look like Iraqi mutants than you do now. But part of that is that they were isolated for so long and their mutations were getting more and more complicated. So that made sense to me. Yes, and I just think in a, a violent, more difficult environment, a more violent, more difficult people would be born, you know? Alec Bain writes, Dear Connor and very esteemed guest, Mr. Hickman, longtime listener, first time caller. When I heard Jonathan was coming on my favorite podcast, I knew I had to write in. Jonathan, you are my all-time favorite comic book writer, and I really have you to thank for my obsession with these characters. Hoxpox was the first X-Men comic I ever read, and I've been loving the ride ever since. One of the characters who has recently become an all-time favorite in comics of mine is Monet St. Croix. Everything you, Teeny Howard, and Jerry Duggan have done with her has really made me fall in love with her. I love all the spotlight she's gotten recently and the way you tied together her difficult history with Penance. I know you're a big Gen X fan, but what was it in particular that inspired you to give Monet that power-up? Were you worried it would make her too overpowered since she already has so many? Did you have a story in mind that would explain how she was able to gain control over the penance form? Before I end this email, I just wanted to say thank you so much for all you've done with the character, and thank you to Connor for explaining to me what the deal is with her frankly insane publication history. Seriously, this podcast is an absolute godsend. I love everything the two of you have worked on, and I can't wait for this episode. Thank you, Alec. I love Monet, too, so this is a fun question. Yeah, I mean, I love the Gen X kids. I hate what happened to them over the years as they became superfluous. Right. They're trapped between the like 80 Academy X characters and the classic new mutants. Yeah. So they don't have much space to breathe. Yeah. And so, so I was trying to do a little bit of rehab there, but uh, with her convoluted history needed to be cleaned up just, just, just so it could just make a little bit more sense. And so I was like, well, why don't we make them all penances and, you know, her and the kids and let's just make it a family thing. And I don't know if that was the best choice or not. I like it. I think it's made her a more recognizable character. Like she's very distinctive now. She's an uncanny Avenger now. And you put her in penance mode on the cover. There's no ambiguity about who that character is. Right. right. But just in and of itself, fantastic character attitude and all of that kind of stuff. Just a great, she's the best. Yeah. Just great. It reminded me also, I mean, I'm a big Emma fan and it reminded me of what Grant did with Emma, like giving a character an alternate mode is something that excites people. It's very toyetic. It's very, you know, visually exciting. It's also an interesting parallel between those two characters who have always been kind of interrelated, but Monet would never admit that they're interrelated, which is one of the things I like about Monet. She out Emma's Emma every chance she yes. gets, which is 
enthusiastic about it. Yeah. While yeah. also being like, I'm nothing like Emma. And it's like Monet, babe, like. <laughs> Also on the topic of Gen X, Emmett Armstrong writes, Hi, Connor and illustrious guest Jonathan Hickman, long-time listener, first-time caller, hailing from Derry in the Emerald Isle. An attempt at an accent, Connor, would be greatly appreciated. I cannot do a Northern Irish accent. The Good Friday Agreement would shatter in, in moments if I even attempted a Northern Irish accent. But thank you for believing that I could. First off, I'd like to thank the two of you for the one-two punch of Hawksbox and Cerebro, which completely reinvigorated my love for the X-Men and my favorite characters. Connor, your episode on Cyclops, his potential autism reading, and how that fueled your father's bond with Scott really struck a chord with me and helped me examine my own place on the spectrum. That's lovely, Emmett. Thank you for sharing that. Jonathan, your love for Gen X has been so greatly appreciated. Growing up in the 90s, I fit nicely into Gen X's demographic and have nothing but love for that book. Gen X issue 4 was the first comic that ever made me cry. Thank you for giving so many of those characters a chance to shine on Krakoa. On that note, my questions are, what was it about Gen X that appealed to you so much? And is there another character from that team who you think still deserves a bigger spotlight? Thank you again for all the time and effort you've put into these characters and stories. The Krakoa era has brought me nothing but joy, and Fall of X is my greatest fear at this point. Guramayagut! Emmett, don't be afraid. You're in good hands with these writers. It's going to be okay. These characters will be alive long after we're dead, and there will be stories about them long after we're all on the ground. So it's going to be okay. I promise. Um, I'm trying to think. I, 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 there's probably a better answer than Chris Bacciolo was drawing it, and I'm the biggest Chris Bacciolo fan on the planet. And so, therefore, I was always going to love Gen X no matter what. But probably that generation next mini series that came out after you got the first chunk of that book and it was great. And then you got this fucked up version of them in age of apocalypse. It just, it was just kind of a perfect first two years of a book. Gen next is so good. <laughs> it's it hard, just, it's it just, hard to it beat that. Perfect. It was just perfect. But I, I, I would say that one of the reasons why, and again, I feel very strongly about the fact that it feels like that team was put together. It was awesome. And then it just got blown apart. One of the reasons why we made a big deal of bringing Everett back was because Sync was just a freaking awesome character. That's an awesome power set. And I, I loved the idea of you know, one of the Easter eggs of, of House of X was that all the Gen X kids were back and they were together. And just like you've got to watch the new mutants grow up and become different things, but stay close. This, the same was true here. We're like, we were fixing that. And so I guess that's a decent answer. Yeah, it's a good answer. In terms of like who could get more spotlight, I'm still waiting for like the great Husk story. And I think there is one and we've just never quite gotten there. But I think that she's got potential. And Skin is a character who's never really had it's his great. day. So there's yeah. that too. But I think that what Jerry in particular has done with Sync over the last couple years has been, I mean, he's an A-list character yeah. now. And uh, it's good stuff. It's good to see. Stella Arnold writes, hello, big fan of the podcast since finding it in April of last year, and I managed to get caught up just in time for Maddie. Huge fan of you and your guest and seeing X-Men through a queer lens. I started reading X-Men again because of this show, starting with Hawksbox, and loved it. My question for esteemed guest Jonathan Hickman is, what's up with horticulture? How do you come up with the idea for a gang of evil old lady geniuses? Are the members inspired by any specific old ladies in your own life? Until the Avengers hold an intervention for Dr. Hank McCoy, make mine Cerebro. 
I know people hate horticulture, but I like them. I think they're funny. I I think they're hilarious and evil in a way that only evil grandmothers can be. I famously love an evil old lady, though, so I'm kind of a mark for that. They're all based on my grandmothers. Like <laughs> it's it's like it's like two of them are my mom, my grandmothers, and then the other two are my wife's grandmothers. <laughs> and it's pretty much like. I, I know people think that it like comes out of nowhere. It does all that shit is stuff I've had said to me by those women at some point. Oh, I'm sure. Know? I mean, the the facial expression when one of them is like, you know, whatever it is they say to Emma about how she's like dirty or at the face that she makes. I, I'm not joking. Like that, that literally <laughs> was something. You need to wash yourself, girl. That's the line. <laughs> like, like, like it's like go. You need to go wash. They feel very southern in a way that Oh sure. Yeah. Sure. It's a little it's a little it's a little golden girls, it's a little designing women. Two of my favorite shows. But it's mostly my grandmothers. I think that they're a great little addition. And horticulture is a name I cannot believe you got away with for a Marvel supervillain team. That's very funny. Yeah. So <laughs> I had I had a lot of rope there for a little while. <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of I have a lot of rope in general because I sell Marvel a bunch of books, you know, yeah. I, I make a bunch of money for the company. But you can bring a horticulture, but you can't make her drink is really something I, I when I read that, like I laughed. I was like, God damn, Jonathan Hickman gets away with the murder sometimes. He's <laughs> you know. I'm sure I'm sure that there are X-Men fans listening to this that uh that are are furious right now and 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 I Oh well what else is new if the X-Men fandom were able to agree on anything world peace the following day well, I'm just saying I'm just saying you guys you guys should go take a bath you know <laughs> Last question, and thank you so much to everybody who wrote in. There were a lot of questions for this episode, as you could imagine, and I hope that I managed to get the breadth of of the subject matter, even if I couldn't read everyone's. But thank you all so much. I really do appreciate it. Noah Davis Cheshire writes, To the Honorable Connor and his Honorable Guest, I know firsthand that comics and podcasts are profoundly collaborative mediums, so it'd be a short-sighted thing to say that either are ever really the product of a single hand. However, I hope you'll forgive me when I say that if I had to name the two individuals most responsible for my current and blazing obsession with the X-Men, it's the two of you. Well, thank you. That's fine company to be in. The two of you have challenged my debilitatingly immature tastes, and I find myself experiencing so much more joy and depth in these and other works of art because of it. Thank you both. One of the longest-running talking points on this podcast that doesn't involve a godlike woman with a penchant for violence has been the difference between constructive and destructive additions to canon. I'm sure the focus of today's episode has no doubt brought out some stellar examples of both. Mr. Hickman, I get the sense that you use this very same framework to guide discussions during your time at the X office. What elements, in your opinion, make for a strong, engaging addition to an ongoing canon? How does one use canon constructively? What are some concepts from those first years on Krakoa that you think really embody that ideal? Once again, thank you both for doing what you do. Connor, on behalf of myself and the countless other flat scans that have gotten to grow by sharing in your joy for now and for as long as you're willing to share it, make mine. Cerebro Noah. Well, thank you, Noah. That's very sweet. The concept additive versus destructive is something that you definitely stressed early in your time on Krakoa. How do you feel one can best add to ongoing worlds in the way that you have done successfully now several times? Specifically in relation to working at a big place like Marvel, where there's shared history and 
a hundred writers writing different stuff every month and all that kind of stuff. My take on this has evolved over the years. When I first came to Marvel, I was just trying to write cool, exciting shit, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, more than anything else, I was just trying to just bang out cool pages, page after page and create velocity and, and, and have my books matter and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I remember I did a really dumb thing in Fantastic Four where I may sounds so stupid, but I, I stuck Reed Richards first girlfriend's head in a jar and then had somebody step on it or something. It, 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 it was a series of events that led to that. It was Alyssa Moy. Alyssa right? Moy, yeah. There was a reason why I, I got to that point in the story that was completely logical and all that kind of stuff. But after the end of it, I was like, and people were upset about it. Not enough people because it's Alyssa Moy and who gives a shit, right? As the world's leading Candy Southern advocate, I offer my condolences and respect to the Alyssa Moy heads who were mad about Alyssa Moy's head. Well, and this is my point. Like it matters to somebody, right? And afterwards I was like, I was like, all right, what I did made perfect sense, but I really broke something and I broke it in a way that somebody's going to have to fix it before they get to use it again. And it felt really, really wrong. And a further extension of that, because I was, that was really early on in Fantastic Four. And then later on, you know, I did this issue in Secret Warriors where a bunch of the Howling Commandos died. Yeah. You know, it was like last stand of the Howling Commandos. And that felt like it mattered more because I had built to it. But even in it mattering more, I had taken characters off the table that other people weren't going to be able to use. And I just, after those two experiences, I was like, all right, look, just as a general rule. And okay. And so also at the same time that I'm doing this, I'm trying to write other books and I'm like, I want to do a book about this. And then the editor goes, well, this character's dead. Right. And I just developed an ethos for don't do that to other people because it's a shitty thing to have to deal with, especially when you're trying to create stories that matter and the stories that matter are the stories that resonate and they last and endure and all the characters mean something to somebody. And it just became an, a, a, an attitude of when you're done playing, clean up the fucking room, put the toys back on the shelf, like a good kid, you know, and add something to the mythology. Don't over overall be additive. Don't be destructive. Right. And so, you know, you it's okay to kill Johnny Storm if you know how you're going to bring him back, right? Right. It's okay. That's okay. Like, that's a story that you're telling. But it's not okay to just randomly kill characters off to try and make them look cool compared, trying to get somebody over, I guess, is the mm. wrestling term. I just, over time, realized that, and I mean this like as career advice, like if you want to matter to a company who's sole existence is the intellectual property that they control make that ip be worth more instead of making it be worth less like that's that's some pretty solid career advice if you're interested in pursuing life inside of corporate whatever right you know i don't condone but <laughs> if, you choose, if you choose to make that choice so be it right it's a tough business it is but, you know, that's just the general rule that I have for myself, right? 
So going into the X-Men, I thought making a uh, resurrection a thing would mean that the writers would write less death. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it did not have that effect. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I, 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 my, I, I, I chose poorly. <laughs> well, I think what you did that worked well is that now every character from X-Men besides Candace Southern, every mutant character that anybody could ever care about is back. Yeah. And now we have them and they're all toys that people can use. Sure. And I think it would have been better if we did not use it as often as we did, you know, but at least we're not breaking something, mm -hmm. you know, uh, whenever it happens. And and so that's that's just kind of, how I feel about that. I, I feel like that's being a good, I think that's, I think that's staying on the playground. I think it's coloring inside of the lines a little bit. And I just think it's smart business and uh, good storytelling to do that. I don't know if that answers the question or not, but that's how I feel about it. I think it does. And I think a good note for us to start to wrap up on, because I've kept you for a very long time and you're a busy guy and I appreciate so much. How long have, how long have we been on, on this call? Uh, we are at three hours and 45 minutes. It goes by fast. This is the thing. I don't think I've, I don't think I've been on Zoom or the phone for three hours and 50 minutes with anyone besides my mother in the last four years besides well, you, Connor. I'm so special. congratulations. And now we're connected for life. That's how it works. That's the dark <laughs> magic of Cerebro. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for being my guest. I know you have two projects coming up at Marvel. If you want to talk about them at all for the listeners at home, Gods and Ultimate Invasion with Brian Hitch on Ultimate Invasion and Valerio Skitti on Gods. I actually have more stuff. I mean... Yeah, I'm like, what else is coming? You've got... I'm sure you got lots of stuff coming that I don't know about. I can't, I can't really talk about the stuff that I have coming up that hasn't been announced. But I obviously have been working since inferno mm -hmm. it just because of the size of the projects and the artists that were working on them and, and kind of wrapping up covid publishing lines and you know we got a new publisher in the middle of all of this stuff and so you know it, it's just all now starting to come out but um I'm, i've been busy i've been working I've got a lot of cool stuff coming out. Obviously, the first thing that's going to be out is Ultimate Invasion with Hitch. And it's kind of a, what would the Ultimate Universe kind of be like if it came out now instead of in 2005 mm. or whatever? One. Whenever. It's been a minute. And then Gods is, Gods is a really cool project. Nobody knows what it is, <laughs> which is fun, which is like great. And trust me, I've been trying to find out and everybody's very good at not telling me. Yeah, well, I guess the best way to pitch it is to say when I came back to Marvel, I pitched two things. I pitched House of X and I pitched this. Both were greenlit and this is just finally getting ready to come out. It's really cool. I'm really proud of it. Valerio... In the same way that House of X and Powers of Ten were really, really career changing for Pepe and RB, this is going to be the same way for Valerio. It's amazing, amazing work. I'm so proud of him and delighted with each page that comes in. And I think people are really going to dig it. So it's hard to describe what it is without giving anything away. <laughs> well, I tried to explain it like, like they, I got misquoted. People said it's Sandman. It's like the Sandman saga. 
is how I got quoted from San Diego, but that's not what I said. I said, I thought I was kind of writing something like Sandman and Tom Brevoort says it's really kind of something more like Saga. Huh. And so it's like Sandman plus Saga. Not the Sandman saga. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of what that is. And it's, it's super cool. I'm really excited about it. Thank you again, Jonathan, for being my guest. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, the merch store, and much, much more at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast for $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at Patreon.com slash Cerebrocast. You can get an ad-free version of each episode as soon as they come out, plus exclusive access to the secret files bonus episodes including the new Cerebro appendix, the series worrying about it, about really complicated tangled continuity things and other stuff that's coming down the pipe, plus the return of the Cerebro Claremont Marathon read-along. Thank you for your patience on that. It's been a crazy Q1 and now I guess we're in Q2 of this year, but I'm really excited to get all the bonus content flowing again. Next week's episode will feature fan favorite guest Jordan Block on Necra, and you will not believe all of the insane shit that Necra's been up to over the last 40 years. It is a little too late, probably, by the time you hear this to send in questions for that, but questions are now open for the following two episodes. Trish Tilby with Patrick Sullivan and Calvin Rankin Mimic with Chad Anderson of Grey Malkin Lane. We will be covering both the 616 60s original Mimic and also the much more prominent version from Judd Winnick's Exiles. So feel free to send in questions about either version. Thank you so much for your support, and until next time, everybody, bye. Bye, everybody. Uh, That was a lot of fun. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is... X-Men.